looking at you, kid. I'm Charles Foster Kane! Hey, Stella! Suck on this. Why are we here? What's life all about? Is God really real? Or is there some doubt? Well, tonight we're going to sort it all out. For tonight, it's the meaning of life. What's the point of all these hoax? Is it the chicken and the egg time? Are we just yolks? Or perhaps we're just one of God's little jokes. Where sauce and love What is going on, everybody? This is Wrong Real, episode 508, podcast for hardcore cinephiles, where we tackle everything from Jean-Luc Godard to Jean-Luc Picard. And today we have an old friend returning to the podcast, Stephen Saunders, host of The Film Connection and contributor to Film 89. And I don't know if we ever made like an official agreement for this, but somehow over time we've only tackled topics that come from the UK in terms of actors and filmmakers, and we're going to keep that trend going today by talking about some of the funniest motherfuckers who have ever walked the face of the earth, Monty Python. So, Mr. Saunders, has been far too long. Welcome back to Wrong Real. Thank you. Uh, to misquote the uh, dirty Hungarian phrasebook sketch, my nipples are exploding with delight. Uh, Excellent. My hovercraft is full of eels. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to do my best not to constantly quote Monty Python today because oh. as an American with an outrageously poor approximation of an English accent – it just will sound awful. It's like when when American actors go over to the UK and try to do English accents, I wanted to like rip my ears right off my head. And sure. so I'm going to leave the quotes to you, and I'll just uh, stick to saying, oh, my God, that's so funny, blah, blah, blah. So, <laughs> <laughs> or I'll quote Terry Gilliam. He's an American. I'm like It's only a he, model. He's an American yeah. doing a very bad Scottish accent and British accent. And I think later on his career, he actually struggled to do an American accent as well. Uh, he, he found that slightly strange. He has like an affectation now when he speaks. It's almost like a, like a faux, strange, mid-Atlantic accent where you can't quite place it. And I feel like yeah, he just spent so much time working in the, in the UK that it kind of eroded the natural characteristics of his homegrown accent. Yeah, that certainly happened. I th- he thinks of himself as a Brit now. I think he's got a British citizenship, um, whether that's for reasons of loyalty or reasons of uh, tax i'm not quite sure but he's one of us now i think gotcha yeah i remember my mom is a first cousin who lived in london for years we went over there for christmas one year and i mentioned that we were going to do something that particular evening is oh tonight i was like dude you're from richmond virginia it's not saying tonight like i, I know where <laughs> you're from you spent decades in america i don't mm. believe your phony accent Yes, yes, yes. And of course, the Pythons did some very bad American accents along the way. That must have caused you some pain while you've been rewatching these movies. I don't know if these guys can do any wrong in my because even when I yeah. find like a sketch or a bit or a scene in their movies that I don't particularly like, I know if I'm patient for three seconds, mm. I'm going to see some of the most deliriously funny material ever conceived by human beings and... Mm. I don't want to get too carried away with my showering them with affection yet because I want to first talk about Stephen Saunders. Sure. So for people who have not heard you since our With Nail and I episode, which I loved, yeah. our We've Gone on Holiday by Mistake episode, catch people mm. up. What have you been up to? What's going on in the world of uh, the cinema over in the UK? Well, I'm going to be very honest with you. I, I mean, 
as you can appreciate, I haven't been going to the cinema very much recently, um, partly because I have a very, very energetic two-year-old who absorbs most of my time. And now we're completely sort of shut down, aren't we? So uh, it, a lot of it's actually been sort of Netflix and television ra rather than movies. Uh, I was in a, a lockdown, a completely isolated lockdown for a while. Um, and I did catch up on a lot of movies I, I really enjoyed, such as um, Midsummer, which I hadn't seen. Oh, nice. I thought that was extraordinary. And uh, one that managed to slip through the net was uh, Killer Joe, which I thought was extraordinary. Very cool. One of the nastiest movies I've ever seen. Yeah, uh, <laughs> So, uh, but, but in terms of sort of my online life, uh, I've got a podcast, which I haven't recorded an episode uh, for quite some time, actually. And that episode uh, starred uh, Your Good Self. Um, and the, the podcast is called The Film Connection. And we did an episode connected to this on uh, Terry Gilliam's uh, The Fish King, which is great. Um, and I also have a book that's available uh, for Kindle download called Into the Eye of Magic, which is uh, ostensibly a young adult fantasy novel, although it does have some adult parts. It has a bit of sex and a bit of swearing in it. I like um, all I think... the above. I can't remember. Did I leave you a nice review on Amazon Sight Unseen when I when I ordered the book? Or I can't I can't remember. I think you did. Very I nice. Did. I was Excellent. Very grateful for that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Always happy for a little dishonesty on the part of my uh, friends and, and, and allies. Well, um, speaking of fantasy, I don't want to get too off off track, but have you had a chance to read any of Joe Abercrombie's novels? He's probably my favorite ongoing fantasy novelist, and it's changing because. The books have gone on so long and so much history has taken place that he's kind of shifting gears into the Industrial Revolution. But it starts out as like hardcore sword and sorcery. Mm. And he's seven books deep in his series. He's got the eighth coming out. But he's so regular. And so unlike George R. R. Martin, who hasn't written a book, hasn't published a, a Game of Thrones book since we'll 2011. <laughs> but Joe Abercrombie, every single September, a book comes out. And they're shorter. They're like 450 pages. But they're sure. very manageable. They don't follow a thousand characters. They follow five or six and mm. he's my favorite ongoing, like, grim, dark, kind of evil writer. And he's, he's one of your fellow countrymen. He's got a deliciously sadistic sense of humor. And I, for, for hardcore fans of fantasy, I, he gets my, uh, my highest possible recommendation. Okay, I'll certainly have to check that out. That's uh, coming from you. It must be worth watching because I well, I'll send you an interview with him, and you can just get a mm. get a, like a, an idea of what he's all about. But in interviews, he's he's equally entertaining. And he actually started out as a film and television editor, and he was do, making making a career of it. But his his passion lay in crafting these giant, you know, mythical sagas. So he he switched gears. Oh, well, I look forward to that. I'm sure that's the dream of most people who are in um, sort of journalism is to you know write the great novel. No, I mean, he, he, he was a film editor, creators. not not like an editor for a paper, but like he was actually yeah, like, yeah. splicing film and that sort of thing. Oh, I'm, see, I see. I'm yeah, sorry. and yeah. so uh, so he had a very interesting creative life. He just he really wanted to put words on the page. So, but he says mm. his years editing gives him a different sense of story structure when he writes, and they move like they're, 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 there's not a lot of fat on the bone when, with his. He's going to have a good sense of pace and time. That, Absolutely, uh, that he's bringing to the table as an editor. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, anytime you want to do another episode on the film connection, what I'm trying to do with Wrong Reel, and I'm always failing, but it's one thing I'm going to recommend to people, cooking up topics that don't require any research that are still about movies. Mm -hmm. Like on Tuesday, I've got Bill Tech and Moose Madsen coming on, and we're going to talk about manly movies that make men misty. I have no idea <laughs> which, which, which movies they're going to talk about, but I'm just going to play the role of moderator and go back and forth. So I get to oblige more contributors and more people on the show, but it doesn't completely take up the entire week getting prepared. And so I'm trying to think of ways where I can crank out more content without having to constantly spend like you know hours and hours and hours do like pouring over all these old movies and shows. But when it comes to Monty Python, 
it was a pleasure to revisit this stuff because oh yeah, it's a joy. It had yeah. been a long time since I'd seen a lot of this. I mean, when I was a kid, for whatever reason, in America, Monty Python and the Holy Grail took off on VHS like mm. mid late eighties. I'd seen it on HBO as a little kid. And gotten totally bewildered because I couldn't tell the difference between Excalibur and Holy Grail. And I thought they were the same huh. movie. And sometimes I'd be traumatized and sometimes I would laugh hysterically. And I was just a very confused little kid. And as a teen, I was able to separate the two movie experiences <laughs> and enjoy yeah. them each for what they are. But for yeah. whatever reason, it was like the first time where my circle of friends started thinking they were really cool or really smart because they could appreciate Monty Python. And we were quoting it obnoxiously to each other constantly and that sort of thing. But mm. now at age 43, I think I like their stuff more than ever because I'm not quite as dumb as I used to. I, mean, I still I have a very low operational form of intelligence, but I've got more material to work with than I did like at age 13 or 14. So Life of Brian, when I watched it in preparation for this, I mean, I was falling out of my chair, losing my yeah. mind. I was sending clips from Meaning of Life to my friends. I mean, I just I went kind of crazy and fell in love with them all over again. Yeah, I, I had a similar experience. Uh, it, I mean, it's interesting. Isn't it? I think the, certainly the American audience seemed to really like Python because uh, it made them feel intellectually superior that they were able to understand the yeah. joke. And I, I think that's part of Python's appeal is that mixture of the intellectual subject matter and the very, very silly behavior, the very silly delivery. Um, so and also um, I think I heard Carl Reiner say something like, um, it's far more fun seeing some elegant uh, sort of apparently upper class Englishman be ridiculous than it than it is a sort of goofball. Um, so, you know, I, I can understand the appeal, certainly um, for myself. I think it started out with Grail uh, and what I saw Grail probably when I was about 13 and it was just on the television and it made me laugh in ways that nothing else up to that point had made me laugh. And I didn't really understand why I was laughing. It was like being tickled in a strange place and not really understanding what was happening to me. Uh, and I would say up until going back and watching all the movies for this, I would have said Holy Grail was my favorite of their films because it is the silliest, I would say. Uh, it is the most outrageous of their films. Um, but then when you get to Life of Brian, you realize that it is less silly uh, but there's an intellectual undercurrent that is palpable. And yet at the same time, it is still hilariously funny. It's just working on a different level and it's a more and polished film. Almost eerily decades ahead of its time. Like there are some yeah. bits there that would play just fine today in a modern movie because it deals with thing, like kind of echo chambers and people who have like a point of view that no matter what information they try and digest, they find a way to kind of make it work for their bias, whatever that bias might be, or just like mm. the way you have mm. certain factions that can be so hostile to people who are just slightly different uh, from from their particular faction. I and mean, all that stuff about like the People's Front of Judea and yes. all the different groups that they despise. I mean, I was screaming. I was like, this is like the funniest fucking scene ever written by a human being. Are you the Judean People's Front? Fuck off. What? Judean people's front. Well, the people's front of Judea. Judean people's front. Oh, wankers. Can I join your group? Now, piss off. I didn't want to sell this stuff. It's only a job. I hate the Romans as much as anybody. Are you sure? Oh, dead sure. I hate the Romans already. Listen, 
you wanted to join the PFJ, you'd have to really hate the Romans. I do. Oh, yeah? How much? A lot. Right, you're in. Listen. The only people we ate more than the Romans are the fucking Judean people from yeah. yeah. And the Judean popular people from oh, yeah. Yeah. Split. 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 And the people's front of Judea. Yeah. Splitters! The people's front of Judea. Splitters! We're the people's front of Judea. Oh. I thought we were the popular front. People's front! Whatever happened to the popular front? Eh? He's over there. I couldn't believe how perfectly mm. he got it because it, it can apply to any religious groups or political groups anywhere mm. in the world, left, right, or center. Mm. And I just couldn't believe how on the nose, just just how perfectly they nailed it. But at the same time, it's like you know, people today uh, on like there's a big topic on conversation in like YouTube and so on and so forth. Like like stop being so political with movies. It's like well, you can be political, but just be really good when you tackle mm. politics. Like tackle it all you want, but. Bring your, put your best foot forward. Make make it yes. make it fascinating. Don't just beat people over the head. Don't try and like teach people something. Monty Python is teaching us, but they're not like a like a teacher grabbing you by the sideburns or by your hair and like mm. you know like like the Roman soldier like you know trying to teach him a le- lesson in Latin. Somehow they managed to tackle religion and politics better than any writers who I, I, I not, not I'm aware of. And it's not mm. off putting. I guess off putting to some because in I lived in North Carolina for years. And it was banned in North Carolina because yeah. Strom Thurmond's wife's friend had uh, told yeah. her that it was objectionable. And so mm. through word of mouth, through the wives of politicians, the movie mm. got pulled. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That was, I mean, that was really the same thing happened here. It was a little bit more convoluted. Uh, there was, um, we're jumping ahead here, but there was a lady called Mary Whitehouse in, in the UK uh, who was uh, the leader or certainly a leading voice in a faction called uh, the Festival of Light was a Christian group. And basically she had brought a blasphemy case against a gay publication because they'd they'd written something. There was a poem in there about a centurion watching Christ being crucified and becoming sexually aroused by that. Oh, wow. That's kinky. Very kinky. So she successfully... They successfully prosecuted this this magazine and they got put in prison for nine months uh, just for publishing that. So that was the sort of backdrop to Life of Brian being made. Um, And uh, so so they they had to be very, very aware of of uh, their own sort of legal position. And I think that made them even more careful than they would have been. And obviously they made it a a parallel rather than an actual rendition of, of Christ. Um, but it's very interesting, you know, you say it, uh, how it's more relevant today than ever. And it's very interesting with the the sort of leftist communist group r- ran by Reg and Francis, the Michael Palin and John Cleese character. Uh, that was a parody of a lot of the left leaning groups in the UK at the time that um, wanted to be so pure that they hated each other more than they hated the thing that they were supposed to oppose. Absolutely. Which we see uh, and, all mm, the time in, in yeah. America as well. I mean, there's 
whether you're talking about the right or the left, they're splinter mm. groups that hate each other. And it's like, fuck off, Eugene, people's front. We're the people's mm. front of Judea. <laughs> it's just, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. you see that phenomenon every day on Twitter. I mean, you, when mm. you go on Twitter, like the biggest vitriol is oftentimes with these ideological purity tests, whether you're talking about the far left or the far right. And like, mm. are you with us or against us? And if you're not, if you're not checking off all of our boxes and, check, check, you know, agreeing with all of our bullet points, well, then you can't be a part of it. And so that's why I'm more than happy to be a political party of one person called mm. James Hancock, host of Wrong mm. Reel. And people can listen to Morantz or not listen to him, but there are no ideological mm. purity tests to listen to Wrong Reel. If you love movies, I don't care what your politics are. You are welcome in the, the Wrong Reel inner circle. Excellent. Excellent. Yes. And, and, and it, I mean, the movie was essentially banned in parts of the UK, just as it was banned in parts of the US. Uh, and they had local councils saying, uh, you know, I think one local councillor in Devon said, you don't need to you don't need to be in a pigsty to know that it stinks, which is just a way of saying I haven't seen the movie. But someone told me it's probably a or, bit nasty. So that fantastic interview on television where that one figure keeps saying, mm. oh, it's just it's 10th rate. It's such a 10th rate. Film. Tenth it's, like, rate yes. it's like, how many times are you going to call it 10th rate? Like, we get the point. You don't like mm. it. But each time he says it, he like, says it with more anger, almost like. He's starting to really like let his professional facade drop and it makes mm. him less convincing each time he mm. says it. Yeah, that's the the Friday night and Saturday morning interview uh, between Michael Palin, John Cleese, the Bishop of Southwark and Malcolm Muggeridge, who is also part of Mary Whitehouse's organization, the Festival of Light. And wasn't he a notorious think, alcoholic and homosexual? Like, which I'm, that, if you want to be a yeah. drunken homosexual, by yeah. all means, enjoy yourself. But I think he was... Um, He's a hypocrite, hypocritical in his. Yeah, that's, uh, that's the only issue. Was. He's a hypocrite. It's not. There's anything wrong with those things. Yeah. But but it, it was the, the. I think the reason why Muggeridge, uh, who was the, I thought the more reasonable of the two of them, became so enraged was actually because he is the target of the comedy, not him specifically, but people like him, who believe things uh, blindly without actually engaging their intellect. And all, all the film is doing is telling you not to do what you're told, to actually think for yourself. And I think, you know, to, to sort of move on from your point, that's why it deals so well with re religion is because it doesn't actually deal with religion as such. It just deals with the idea of free thought. But you keep making the basic assumption. Sorry, let me just say this. Yeah. Mark. You keep making the basic assumption that we are ridiculing Christ and Christ's teaching. And I say that we are not. Would you imagine that your scene, for instance, of the Sermon on the Mount... The scene in this, in your your film of the Sermon on the Mount, right. is not ridiculing one of the most sublime utterances that any human being has ever spoken on this earth. Of course, it is. No, no, it's Absolutely making fun not. of the guy who's remembered it wrong and of the people who don't mm. understand it and miss mm. the point. Well, I think I that think it's... that's really unfair because I think that a lot of people looking in will think that we have we have actually ridiculed Christ yes. physically. Christ is played by an actor, Ken Colley. He speaks the words. Um, from the Sermon on the Mount. It's treated absolutely respectfully. The camera then pans away. We go to right to the back of the crowd to someone who shouts, speak up, mm. because they cannot hear him. <laughs> now, I mean, if that utterly, no, no, if that that utterly only, undermines that one's is, faith in Christ, no, no, then I think it faith cannot be turned I started off by saying that this is such a 10th rate film that I don't believe that it would disturb anybody's yes, I know you started with an faith. open mind. I realise that. I, I, I <laughs> Um, so it's not t trying to teach you about religion. You're not going to learn anything about religion really from the film. You're just going to be hopefully amused and inspired to question the things that people tell you. Yeah, it makes you laugh at things that you already know about people. Or even if you haven't articulated yet, you've kind of started to suspect. But mm. maybe we should, instead of, because I mean, I before <laughs> we're getting ahead of ourselves, let's start at the beginning. So Monty yes. Python, 
when did the show start? I mean, like, if people want to get like the full deep dive, the comprehensive yeah, look yeah, yeah. at the Monty Python experience. Mm-hmm. There's this really mm-hmm. good documentary on Netflix where it's a, they go like for every year of their career, basically they devote an hour of this documentary, and you, you yes, get the true yeah. deep dive from the before, during, and after. And I, I loved every second of it. And there's so many great anecdotes, but give us the Stephen Saunders version of how these how these six men came together and how they appeared on the BBC. Well, I'll keep it. I'll keep it brief because you're right. I mean, it's been covered ad nauseum in so many different books and documentaries, a decade after decade after decade. The thing I had problem, the problem I had with preparing for this podcast is actually too much information. There's enough uh, for a 20-hour recording easily. I yeah, mean. yeah, no question. Um, but but the very simple version of it is that they uh, were at university. Um, you've got uh, uh, Chaplin and Cleese were at Cambridge University, where you have the Footlights, which is. Uh, the way that I think Eric Idle put it, it's a bit like uh, people are high up in comedy in the UK would go to the footlights to find future comedy writers. A so bit like National like Lampoon MI5 at Harvard and things like that. For spies. Yeah, but, but as I say, he said it was a bit like the way MI5 look for spies and look for the right kind of people nice. in, in, uh, in university. So, so they had that. Uh, and then over in, oh, and Eric Idle also was in Cambridge, and you had uh, Michael Palin uh, and Terry Jones, who were uh, in Oxford, and they essentially just crossed paths because they were all performers. Um, John Cleese was a little bit ahead of them all, so he actually sort of was becoming famous uh, while they were still at university. Um, so he was touring with the Cambridge Review. It's called Cambridge Circus. He was actually touring the West End and even went to Broadway, uh, and then they didn't do very well on Broadway, so they ended up in a smaller theater. But that's how we met Terry Gilliam. Uh, Terry Gilliam was a, a commercial cartoonist and he was doing things called Fumettis, um, where you, you it, it's basically a magazine version of a film with lots of still f- uh, photographs. And apparently he said, I like the faces you pull to John Cleese. Uh, and so John Cleese was in one of his um, in, in one of his Fumettis as a man having a love affair with a Barbie doll or something very, like very that. Very nice. Yes. Uh, Femetic culture and then, is alive and well online. It just, uh, it's much yeah. more erotic these days. <laughs> indeed. Yes, indeed. That Barbie doll would have been put in some compromising uh, situations now, probably. Um, and uh, G- Gilliam, late, you know, down the line, wanted to get involved in uh, TV, fed up with the magazine world, and so used his connection with John Cleese um, to be introduced. Uh, to uh, Palin and Jones and Eric Idle, who had come together to make a TV show called Do Not Adjust Your Sets, which was for children. And uh, John Cleese uh, and Graham Chapman were making a show called At Last, The 1948 Show. And uh, Cleese, they'd all worked together on a show called The Frost Report as writers, and then they'd spun out to do these other shows. And then Cleese, who loved Do Not Adjust Your Sets, called Palin and... uh, and basically made the offer, and they all came together. But Cleese had been famous for quite a bit longer. He was a star on the Frost Report, and he was a, and then he was a star on uh, at last the nineteen forty eight show, which was a more mainstream show, which was um, actually very like Python. You can watch some of it on YouTube, and uh, the sketches are very, very Python esque. The the only real difference is, unlike Python, uh, at last the nineteen forty eight show you know, they do have the punchlines because the famous thing about Python is that they threw away the punchlines. Which um, is one of the best ideas they ever had because a, mm. a lousy punch, if, if a punchline's not sublime, 
And then mm. it kind of makes your sketch end on a whimper. And their yeah. transitions got more and more interesting. I think by the time you get to Meaning of Life, the transitions mm. are so organic and so natural, you almost don't even see that they're happening. Like when you go from a mm. sex ed class into a rugby match between the students and the masters, I mean, I was shitting my pants. But I was like, oh my God, like we're in a totally different sketch now. And it mm. just seems to be bled from one to, I mean, because I feel like of all the movies, Meaning of Life is very much more similar to the original show than obviously yeah. uh, Holy Grail or Life of Brian, mm. but they've really got their transitions down to like an absolute art or science at that point. And I, I love the fact that they're like, screw it, we're just gonna say it now for something completely different and just move on. Yeah. And it's like when you see great, I've been to see a lot of improv in New York, and mm. when a sketch has run its course and they're starting to run out of steam, someone mm. will just run across the stage and just kind of wave their hands and the sketch is over and they just move on to the next idea. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that you say that there was a thing that they did early on before the Python show. And I think it was probably during the kind of Cambridge Circus and Oxford Review days where they would uh, use sketches. It was like an after show and they'd use sketches that they had thrown away, basically, that they didn't think worked. And they would just pick them out of a hat and read them. And then as soon as the audience stopped laughing, they would throw them away. They would just, you know, they would, they'd put them on the ground and move on to the next one. And that seems to me a, kind of a precursor to what to what Python was. Um, it's also worth saying, I think this is something as a British person that I'm, I might be more aware of than, than yourself, is that they really were poking fun of the British establishment in a pretty big way. And, you know, the, uh, Britain had been very buttoned down after the war, uh, uh, mainly because um, we needed a return to normality, essentially. Um, and then shows like Beyond the Fringe, which gave... Uh, you know, Dudley Moore, probably the most famous person in the, from your point of view, but also Peter Cook, Jonathan Miller. And they were really ripping apart the British establishment. Um, but they did have the crappy one liners at the end of their sketches. And then you also had the Goon Show, uh, which preceded um, Beyond the Fringe, which is a radio show, which is the most it's just the silliest thing you've ever heard in your life. It's lots of silly voices. And Peter Sellers really, just unhinged and unleashed. Exactly. And Spike Milligan, uh, who it was really his show. He, he wrote a lot of the episodes who genuinely suffered from mental illness uh, from coming out of the war. So they, they kind of sort of combined those two things. And uh, Milligan had a show called Q5, which aired just before Python. And if you watch there, there aren't many episodes of that, actually, because the BBC had this thing about wiping just wiping into oblivion all of their shows. They almost so like, wiped Monty Python. Almost wiped Monty Python, yeah. So there's very little of the early episodes of Q5, but if you watch it, it is like watching Python. It's actually the same show. Really, it's very, very similar. The only difference is you haven't got, you haven't got Gilliam beautifully bringing all of these things together. Um, yeah, I mean, Gilliam he, basically deserves the credit for saving the show yeah. because <clears throat> yeah. at one point they basically let them know that they're about to wipe the tapes. And not only that, they're mm. going to throw away all of his animation. So he went yeah. over there and just like cans upon cans of his animation. Mm. And he took the tapes and the animation, took them back to his attic. And years mm. later, they're like, uh, well, people really want to see these kids. Like, we have, can we have them back? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, no, that did, they did save it themselves. But I should say that they, they didn't get wiped. And the reason they didn't get wiped is because a guy called Ron Devilliers in Dallas, who had the PBS station in Dallas, Basically, he was one rainy day. He had nothing to do. And he said, if you he said to Time Life, who uh, sold the BBC stuff to America, he said, if you've got anything else that I can see, is there anything left that you haven't shown me? And they said, well, there's one show 
you're not going to like it. Nobody wants it. We've been trying to sell this thing. We're probably going to wipe it. Um, and he said, no, no, I've got nothing to do. So, so he went over there, watched an episode, loved it, and then, and then asked them to show him all of the extant episodes. So he watched, I think, the first two series um, and then didn't want to let on that it was the greatest thing he'd ever seen in his life and bought all of it uh, without asking anybody's permission. And it went on in Dallas. And I mean, it, it, the, the amount that he paid was immediately recouped with uh, like pledges to be yeah. immediately. <laughs> Uh, so it worked out well. And, it's funny and so how like became... rural kind of Southern Americans love this stuff. I think because a yeah. lot of Southerners fancy themselves as like, well, a lot of them are just straight up Anglophiles, like shameless Anglophiles to an almost yeah, nauseating yeah. degree like my mother. But like famously Elvis would watch these and quote yeah, them and loved hilarious. it. So it's a yeah. strange thing where like Southerners don't sound like the English, but they've got a lot of pride and a lot of their kind of like waspy English heritage. Mm. And so I think that's one mm. of the reasons that uh, Monty Python's always played well in the South. Yeah, so it's, it's very interesting how it found its audience because there was certainly a belief that there was no possibility that it could make it in the US. And so to talk about the film that we haven't talked about, which is probably the least significant film, uh, and now for something completely different, uh, was made as an attempt to break into the, to the US audiences. Just once in a decade, in a lifetime maybe, the world of entertainment is disrupted and utterly elated by something entirely new. Good Lord! It could be the script, the presentation, the players, or a combination of all three that team together to transform the ordinary into the original, to emerge with something completely different. And now for something completely different. him to drop the banana. Then you eat the banana, thus disarming him. Suppose he's got a bunch. Shut up! Not since Eve provoked Adam in that famous garden has anyone created such hilarious havoc. Oh, do you want to come back to my place, bouncy, bouncy? That'll be six shillings, please. The Hungarian English phrase book. A must for the common market. The maniacal laughter makers starring in and now for something completely different. I cut down trees, I eat my lunch, I go to the lavatory. On Wednesday I go shopping and have buttered scones for tea. Here is something completely different in army maneuvers. Who get her whoops? Something completely different in marriage guidance council. Indeed, the very idea of consulting a professional marital advisor has always been of the greatest repugnance to me. Although, <laughs> far be it from me to impugn the nature of your trade or, or profession. How to appreciate good music. For a complete change in outrageous laugh-making cinema, Join Monty Python's Flying Circus for something completely different. I cut down trees, I wear a hill, suspend his hand of God. I wish I'd been a girly, just like my dear papa.
it's just like a rehash of like their highlight reels, some of their best sketches. And I don't know, I kind of, when I watched it, it was early on in my preparation and mm. I, I was, I was loving it, but I kind of prefer seeing those sketches as originally done, yeah. even if the production yeah. value isn't mm. in a, isn't as strong. It just seems a little too cleaned up in the movie. Yeah. I'm glad the movie got made and it is, it's totally fun to watch. But if I'm going to watch those sketches, I, I want to see like their first pass when it felt fresh and spontaneous. I couldn't agree more. Actually, this morning, um, I, I was rewatching some of the sketches from the TV show just to see the differences between them and um, and and now for something completely different. And it's the energy from the audience as well uh, that they seem to feed off of. Uh, I think Palin said that he liked the movie because it gave him an opportunity to polish his performances. I prefer them unpolished. There's so much more energy. Well, in the comedy TV is show. much more honest if you can hear people mm. whether or not people are laughing. And it's like... Mm. People can make all sorts of excuses as to why their stand-up or their films or whatever are not working. Like, oh, well, the audience, they weren't in the mood to laugh. It's like, well, they bought a ticket or they showed up. Everybody's always in the mood to laugh. But mm. are you are you being funny? Like, <laughs> like there's, yeah, there's, no yeah, more, yeah. like there's no more honest barometer of how people are feeling than an involuntary mm. action of spontaneous laughter. And, mm. yeah, the, I mean, but even with the noun for something completely different being diminished mm. compared to the show – I still laughed my ass off throughout. I mean, with the very the opening where they shift from this bit about like this stupid short about people trying to hide and they're yeah, blowing up the yeah, houses yeah. and they're like mm. they're finally like they're blowing up entire cities and there's all this maniacal laughter and finally see John mm. Cleese at a desk in the woods and he's like, oh, now for something completely different. And yes. I, I was just you know nothing but smiles from ear to ear. So I was still laughing. Mm. Yeah, it feels very. Py- I mean, it is very Python esque the way it's been thrown together. They they've sort of disowned the film to a certain extent but the material is theirs actually and it it is some of the best material from the first and second seasons i don't think there's anything bad in there i think if it was your introduction to python i don't think that would be a bad thing uh and it does have that stream of consciousness quality that really defined the tv show um it, I mean, it was directed by the director of the TV show, though how much creative input he really had, I don't know. But uh, it does definitely have that aspect of, for example, the guy smacking the mouses on the mouse organ. You know, he's playing a tune by killing mice with hammers. Uh, and then he escapes and runs into another sketch later on. That's very, very Python-esque. You know, one sketch breaking into another sketch. Or like you so get does- Gilliam with a little more money for his animation. Like when you got like yeah, yeah. cars dealing with the population problem in the mm. city. And like an mm. atomic mutation creates this giant cat who's like striding after oh, them and great. eating yeah. buildings. And it's like, all right, mm. this is really funny stuff. But as a film freak, I think the scene that made mm. me laugh the hardest is when you're watching this highlight reel of all this suggestive imagery sexually. And it suddenly turns oh, out yeah. it's just a guy showing his girl clips. And she's like, are you mm. actually going to do anything? Are you just going to show me films all evening i was like ooh, it strikes a little close to the bone like i need to show, show that to my girlfriend like, yeah like that that's precisely how okay. y'all behave <laughs> oh, that's really funny yeah yeah and of course it has the lovely carol cleveland in it who oh, i know you've taken god to. yeah i've i mean she's the seventh member of the money python team and yeah. I, I first saw her as uh, as the as the twin sisters in money python and the holy grail and she was fabulous in that but She's so good. Whether she's luring in mailmen to trap them in that room or getting it on with Eric Idle while her husband's like, you know, just mm-hmm. out of reach. I mean, she's obviously astonishingly beautiful, but not like in like a model way, just in a no. really kind of buxom, healthy, like full figure yes. way. And she seems so game and she gets their sense of humor. And like the fact that she's in on the gag, like there are plenty of comedies where they like will unveil a beautiful naked woman. But you can tell she's just there because it's a gig. 
she really seemed to get into the spirit of things and have a ton of fun every time they put her to work. Yeah, I think she was, uh, with the exception of Connie Booth, Cleese's wife at the time, she was the only person that they really reused. And she did become the seventh member of the team quite early on. Uh, the, is, the Pythons often played women themselves. And notoriously I the, the, so. I mean, like, notoriously I mean, so. Terry Jones is... I mean, his version of a woman is uh, will haunt me yeah. for the rest of my days. Oh, there's some it's... lovely filth down here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even going to do it. You, you can't. The thing with that is you can't do it quietly. You have to shriek. You have, you have to shriek it. You have to scream yeah, right into yeah, the microphone. Yeah. And it, yeah, it's yeah. definitely something where you'll see some you'll see some red peaking on your recording instruments. Yeah, I won't be doing it. If I was in a soundproof room somewhere, I'd probably have give it a go. But I don't want to disturb the neighbors. But um, uh, yeah, they, they tended to play the women themselves. And the, the reason that they did that was because early on they'd made uh, there was a pre Python show uh, called The Complete and Utter History of Britain. It was, again, very like Python. And uh, they had basically been forced to cast professional actors and they realized that people just didn't understand what they were doing and it just lost the comedy so it just became easy to play all the parts themselves but if they wanted a sexy woman or a real woman they pretty much just called carol cleveland yeah and and she did clearly get the comedy and she's actually really good in the films she's really really funny in grail good spanking i mean even at age like 12 or 13 i was like yeah, yeah, yeah. Whoa, something yeah. something funny's happening in my man parts like this is it's, I'm, yeah. I'm getting a reaction out of this me spank me yeah and now for the oral sex was the uh yeah exactly oh god yeah she's she's perfect and i mean and, and she's there in in uh, the meaning of life in it with a slightly smaller role and and she's sort of nailed up with them all at the end of life of brian um, and actually, I mean, one thing we haven't talked about is I have seen Monty Python live. I, I went to see them for their reunion show in wow. London, uh, which they, they, they regrouped because I think that they'd been sued by someone involved with Holy Grail for royalties for Spamalot. Basically, that person hadn't received their pot of money from Spamalot. So they were sued in order to recoup their legal costs. They were forced into uh doing a reunion show and uh they sold out the o2 arena in london which is i think well they I, they used it as a fifteen thousand seater they sold it out 10 times in a row which and, and gives what you year was this it was 2014 wow uh, oh wow terry jones he had a stroke at one point that kind of like shut him down correct no, well, I don't know about a stroke. No, Terry Gilliam had a stroke recently, but he okay. was it was a very small stroke. Terry Jones had colonic cancer, but was completely recovered from that. But he was at the beginning because he died of dementia, essentially, uh, last year, at the end of last year, uh, actually on the 50th anniversary, pretty much of Python. Um, so he, we didn't know this then, but he really couldn't remember his lines. OK. And, and that's why. Uh, so he was kind of they included it in the show and they sort of made fun of him. And it, it, it actually, in a weird way, added to it because it was it was different to just watching the sketches replayed. And also precise... they love fucking with each other. I'm like that bit yeah. you sent me where they were having like Graham Chapman's ashes, mm. like in an urn while they're doing an interview on television, like yeah. kicking over the ashes and things like that. Like yeah. they, they were not afraid to make each other uncomfortable or have a, have a little, a laugh at each other's expense. And that competition and that rivalry definitely fueled the comedy every step of the way because it's not like there were like six people who just got who were like in lockstep who saw everything eye no. to eye there no. were some deep divisions and clicks and weird strange mm. divisions of laborers whether you're talking about mm. terry jones and terry gilliam who were rival directors on their yes. films yes. or how like graham chapman and john cleese were a writing team 
that were always kind of at odds with the other writing team. And John Cleese mm. is like, well, how come I'm partnered with this guy who's shit-faced all day? You can't remember yes, anything. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I loved hearing about all those internal rivalries because it just shows a little competition goes a long way. Iron sharpens mm. iron. And if you're trying mm. to be funnier than your friend so that your gag gets used, well, that's mm. going to make everybody work a little bit harder. Well, it, I mean, they were the Beatles of comedy in, in yeah. that sense that they had these incredibly talented people one upping each other. And, you know, I, the, there's a great quote from Eric Idle that said, all six of us together make one perfect mad person. And I think that's that's very, very accurate that they, they all fulfill different roles. Yeah, Eric um, Idle brings the songs and Gilliam brings the animation and yes. Cleese just brings that incredible sense of performance and Graham Chapman has got like the leading man qualities like everybody's mm. got something different that they bring mm. to the table where mm. and it's very rare where you see all six of them on the screen at the same time and somehow when mm. you get all six at once you're like yes like my, my, my world is complete mm. but also as writers as well I mean they I mean Cleese would say that Graham Chapman didn't do very much he was a sort of sounding board and he would he would throw in great ideas uh, of course, when I was a and, kid, I thought he was the star of the group, like because he yeah, was yeah, he was yeah. King Arthur. I was like, all right, well, clearly he's the most important mm. one. But as I was watching the documentary, I was like, oh, he was drinking like a bottle of vodka before lunch every day, <laughs> and, and like hard to work with. Yeah, he he yeah he was definitely impaired by his alcoholism, and they, they talk about in the early days where you know they'd be on stage and he would forget to come on stage, and so they'd have to go on for him. And at one point, I think Eric Idle and John Cleese went on at the same time, and then they ended up doing a sort of uh, synchronized version of his his performance. Um, so, you know, you've got them. Eric Idle was sort of the floater. He worked on his own. Uh, and Terry Jones and Terry Gilliam were much more obsessed with the shape of the shows, which Cleese and Chapman were more just turning out great material. And what I found um, so interesting is that when Cleese left toward the end of the show, they're talking about how it mm. upset the group dynamic so much because they were so used to having like an equal and opposite vote to kind of like mm. oppose people that when you mm. removed Cleese, it gave disproportionate power to Terry Jones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He needed someone to go up against to get the best work out of him. And so, yeah, mm. uh, as, a, as a group of six, they balanced each other out in a way mm. where there's like a checks and balances where nobody could really assert themselves but so far and mm -hmm. i found that to be really interesting that if you take one person out of the equation it mm -hmm. diminishes the entire creative process yeah those last six episodes uh which they often don't talk about the fourth series of python they often talk about it as if there were three but they weren't there were four and those last six episodes they did uh, they aren't as good actually you, they really aren't they they mo they were moving towards doing complete narratives rather than sketches and eric idle apparently didn't wasn't really into that either and didn't contribute a great deal and the reason why they stopped after six rather than doing a full series is actually then eric idle walked out because he thought that they couldn't be as good without Cleese. and the the evidence is there on the screen actually they often get quite defensive and say you know we think we did some of our best work in those last six episodes there's one very good sketch where uh terry jones is at a, well graham chapman is a gp and uh um Terry Jones walks in bleeding to death, asking to be assisted. And, uh, you know, Graham Chapman's making him fill out forms. And the form is actually a general knowledge quiz as he's slowly exsanguinating all over the desk. 
Uh, and it's really funny, but it was actually co-written by Doug- Douglas Adams, who wrote uh, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Gotcha. So, and that, that's probably, for me, that was the high point of that six well, Also, artists series. always love to defend their neglected mm. works. And if somebody yeah. makes an unpopular movie or writes an unpopular song or writes an unpopular book, and mm. they meet a fan who says, oh, well, my favorite is such and such. Like, oh, yes, I think that is my, uh, my, my finest work. Well, before we close the door on the, the early days, are there any sketches that you think are just particularly brilliant? I mean, I feel like there's so many things that get reused or come up again, like, like mm. Graham Chapman, like you know, as a military figure, always talking about, oh, we're not going to have anything that's silly, and like you know, oh, <laughs> silly. I mean, that stuff that's always a nice sketch going yeah, on. <laughs> it, that always that always makes me howl. But I feel like there's, um, I'm obviously there's a film podcast. We're going to focus more on the three films, but yeah. when it comes to sketch comedy, I mean, I feel like the original Monty Python is up there with anything from SNL or Chappelle Show or Key and Peele or any sketch comedy mm. you care to mention. Mm. Monty Python. Their flying, the Flying Circus was one of the, the key moments in sketch comedy history that reinvented, like you said, they're the Beatles of comedy when it came to, yeah. Beatles reinvented pop music, <clears throat> and Monty Python reinvented sketch comedy, but mm. any, any highlights for you? I wanted to, I like that you mentioned Dave Chappelle. I, I, I in a weird way, having watched his Sticks and Stones um, special. I saw that live, which, by the way, oh, like six really? months before, uh, before he posted it on Netflix. <clears throat> wow. It was actually the last few days of the tour, and he mentioned yeah. that they were basically filming like it over and over and over again and like pulling yeah. from the best bits, but yeah. he destroyed. And what you don't see mm-hmm. in the Sticks and Stones is that when the show was over, he did like an hour and a half of just talking to the audience where you could ask him any question you wanted. And he would just mm. improvise. And even though people were asking him all sorts of annoying things about current events and things like that, he still made it astonishingly funny. And he had John Stewart there as his wingman, and I couldn't believe his improvisational skills. Did you ask him anything? No, I was terrified. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I see him in a weird way, and I don't. The Pythons probably themselves wouldn't acknowledge this, but I see him as one of the sort of recipients of their, uh, you know, of of their kind of avant-garde attitude um, in the way that they push the barriers of what's acceptable and what isn't yeah. acceptable. That, that attitude of like a plague in all your houses. I think it's a very sanitary approach to comedy. Because mm. the Pythons are seen as these sort of sweet old granddaddies now. Um, well, they're like but actually, 80. I mean, how old are they? I mean, they're, they're... Well, Cleese is 80. I think the, the other remaining ones are in their mid to late 70s. They've been around a long, long time, but they see that, you know, because of their, their sort of middle class, um, you know, and it, obviously they're quite elderly now. They seem very safe and grandfatherly and sweet and cuddly, but actually they they weren't. At all, they were doing some very edgy, very dangerous. Oh, they're playing comedy. with scalpels they, they without were, a doubt. Yeah, they were censored. You know, the, yeah. the, the third season was censored. There was one sketch where uh, Graham Chapman is asked what his uh, p- favorite pastimes are, and he says golf, strangling animals, and masturbating. And they, <laughs> they, 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 uh, they, they were forced to edit that. So, you know, I see, I, I see Dave Chappelle's, you know, almost bloody-minded desire to say exactly what he wants. And not give a toss if he offends everybody. I see that people, very much. Yeah, the more people up. react and howl and outrage, the more happy he becomes. He's like, all right, good. Like I'm getting a response. Like, yeah, you, yes. Dave Chappelle is going to say precisely what he feels. And mm. I, <clears throat> I think when it comes to stand up, I think right now he there's no one can touch him. I, mean, I saw Seinfeld a few months after I saw Chappelle. Mm. I was like, all right, well Seinfeld's really good, but mm. Chappelle is I think right now he's at the at the top of his game, and I don't think I don't think he's ever been better. Mm. And and the Pythons, they, I think they, I've I've heard them say, you know, that we don't want to be liked, we don't want to be safe, we don't, you know, we don't want to win prizes, we don't want to be part of the establishment. But just because of the time that they were born, their age, the the, the esteem that they're held in now, that's 
that's become the case. But when you actually go back and watch the material, they they were quite dangerous, edgy comedians in a lot of ways. There's a lot of blood. Yeah, a lot doing of like Sam Peckinpah parodies and things the like salad that. Days. Oh my god, yeah. it's so damn funny. I mean, I love I love Peckinpah, but mm. nobody is. I mean, I'm I'm a, I'm a I'm a almost like an ideological like like madman when it comes to like nobody should be beyond reach. No subject should be considered too sacred to poke fun at. And I, I think mm. that's one of the interesting things in the documentary where Cleese was talking about how perhaps in the group he was one of the only ones who felt like there were some subjects that were mm. sacred but that mm. didn't that didn't stop him from hurling himself into life of brian and then the defending it very vigorously and very eloquently on television mm. so I, I feel like when so many people are trying to perhaps tap the brakes and say well you can't make fun of this or you can't discuss this ricky gervais had a great response recently where somebody was interviewing him and they said are, are there any topics that you shouldn't uh, tell jokes about. And he said, well, you're a writer. Are there any subjects that you wouldn't write about? Mm. And I thought that that summed up the topic perfectly. If it if mm. a subject exists, you can write about it. And if, a, if you can write about it, you can sure as fuck make fun of it. So mm. I think with Cleese, he's was probably the more intellectually astute. Certainly, he had the, I would say he had the finest tuned intellect of them. He was a very rigorous thinker. And I suspect when he decided he didn't want to do something, he would be able to justify that in his own mind. And it wasn't the fear of shocking people. He just didn't like it. He didn't think it was funny or he just felt there was something wrong with the comedy rather than that he was afraid of a subject matter. Because, as you say, with Life of Brian, it's about as edgy as you could get for the time. It, and he, like he said, defended it In 2020, it, it would still mm. be edgy if you released yes, it today yeah. for the first time. Yeah. And I mean, I've heard Eric Idle say fairly recently that he doesn't think that Python would get on mainstream American TV today with the subject matters that they were dealing with. I mean, with. the sad reality is comedy right now in movies is mm. basically dead because we're, at, we're in a, mo a sad moment right now where people are afraid of the outrage mobs on Twitter yes. and stand up. I think is what's given stand up the ability to thrive and excel is because a mm. lot of them recognize well, anytime there's an, uh, an era in which you live where people are telling you certain subjects are verboten, that's an opportunity for writers mm. of comedy. And mm. I think a few comedians have realized very, very wisely, this is actually the best time to be a comedian ever because there's so many people that are like almost deliberately going out of their way to be offended by things, which is mm. an, an incredible opportunity for comedians. But when it comes to movies, and movies, Hollywood obviously is very risk averse. Mm. They are putting no money into any comedies in any way, shape, or form, unless they're the most innocuous, family-friendly, harmless. Like when you see like David Spade and Adam Sandler doing all these stupid Netflix movies, people watch them and they're insanely popular. But they're not trying to upset the status quo in any way, shape, or form. Mm. I was thinking about which movies kind of inherited Python, and and the one I thought of. Uh, have you have you seen Four Lions about the terrorists? I did. Wait, so four. You know what? No, I saw a thing, a Robert Redford movie called Young Lions, maybe? No, it, it's it's about a British terrorist cell. And it, okay, it, I it, definitely It's, it's comedy. Yeah. And it gets into how, they, how they've been brainwashed and how they are able to mentally um, it, sort of justify the awful things that they're going to do. And it's a very intelligent comedy, and it is about the lack of free thought. It's very like Life of Brian, actually. It's really worth uh, really worth checking out. Yeah, it's I'm one of the best. Right now, um, 2010, written and directed yeah. by Christopher Morris. There you go. Yes. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, I think Python was really, really edgy for its time. And to answer your question, uh, going back a little ways, my favorite sketches are, I would say, the Lumberjack song, which I think you can't can't live go without. Wrong with. Yeah. Yeah. I like the sillier ones. Uh, the Spanish Inquisition is hysterically funny. Uh, uh, 
slightly lesser known ones there's a sketch called gumby brain surgery i don't know if you've seen that one <laughs> it's the most preposterous <laughs> thing in the world where um michael palin just uh says you know are you the brain specialist in the gumby voice and john clean john cleese comes out and he's got the handkerchief on and the mustache and he goes no no yes Yes, and then uh, he goes to check his uh, brain, but actually what he does is he pulls out his trousers and looks down them, and he goes, no, no, my brain up here. Um, and then they operate on him, and they're sort of hitting him with hammers, saying, brain, get better, and they've got sores out on him and things like that. So that, that was very funny. And and there's another called Dennis Moore, which is a takeoff of the Scarlet Pimpernel, and it's John Cleese as a highwayman robbing people, but rather than robbing them of their money, he just takes flowers from them. And then he keeps bringing flowers to this family of poor people. And they get very, very annoyed because all they've got is flowers and they're wearing flowers and they're eating flowers. <laughs> and they have to explain to him that they want him to get, you know, money and things like that. And he takes, he writes it down on a bit of paper and then steals everything from the rich people. So they're now, you know, in their lovely houses, but they're just dressed in their underwear and they've got nothing. And the people in this hovel are, sort of dripping with wealth and uh, he realizes that isn't working either so then he starts holding up um people and getting them to get out their money and then just hand their money to each other until they've got exactly the same amount of money and uh, it was just one of the it's a bit like the spanish inquisition in that it's a sketch that recurs at the starts at the beginning recurs in the middle comes back at the end of the show and it's just i haven't that's one that really perfect. separates money python from other sketch mm. comedy shows the way they can mm. do weird things where like the pre-credit sketch might run half the episode and then like they would mm. like as a joke run the credits and be like wait yeah. what the fuck like is it over yeah. is it not and then it'd be like more mm. material and the way mm. things would circle back like even as late as um meaning a life the way like the the pirate building circles back mm. into the movie about halfway through i love yes. how once a sketch is over you're not necessarily done with it if they feel like reinserting it. Whereas most traditional mm -hmm. sketch comedy shows, you got your sketch, you got your little mm -hmm. like, you know, monologues in between, but like the sketches mm -hmm. go away after a while. And Monty Python has a much more dreamlike logic when it comes to story structure or episode structure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they had no interest really in like recurring characters and catchphrases, but at the same time, they really had no rules. So if they wanted to, they would reuse a catchphrase or a character, but they didn't feel the need to bring back their popular character. You know, like you don't end up with a Gumby in every episode. I think they recur three or four times. Or over. like Jim Carrey doing Fire Marshal Bill on like In Living right. Color. He was always coming back. And it's, it's mm. just, yeah, they were, it's the same space, but they're just mm. being much more experimental when it comes mm. to the overall structure of the episode. Because I feel like most people write a sketch and it's very self-contained, probably because you have mm. different writers working on different sketches. Mm. And it's funny, actually, with, with Python as well, it, it was that you had these six guys with these different sensibilities and it, it becomes very difficult to determine who did what because you, you'd get Cleese and Chapman writing together, then they would get the sketch up to a certain point and then Terry Jones and Michael Palin might take it off them and work on it and yep. the same thing would happen vice versa so it's, it becomes very difficult to understand where each thing comes from they were very, it was very collaborative and very organic it's almost nauseatingly democratic in terms of everybody getting a, an opportunity to participate mm. and they weren't that interested in money that's the weird thing they, they often did the thing that was creatively the most fulfilling rather than the thing that made them the most money which in, infuriated eric idol who was much more sort of um entrepreneurial than the others but they definitely could have made a lot more money than they actually ultimately did yeah they could have um, squeezed it dry if they wished and to. They, they really didn't no yeah. they Part of their appeal is they did not make fools of themselves. They, they never had a downfall. They didn't their welcome. Yeah, if they had no, made, they really I mean, I feel like Meaning of Life, 
I don't think is as strong as the previous two movies, but there's some scenes that are so goddamn good. Mm. It's a good one to end on. But if they mm. had cranked out, like I mean, I guess like think like Mel Brooks, one of the funniest people who's ever lived, and he's well yeah, alive yeah, yeah. in his nineties. But he overstayed his welcome as a director. But I guess his mm. attitude, would be like, well, I'm still having fun with the process. So who are you to tell mm. me to stop making movies? And he's probably mm. got got a, got a point. But I feel mm. like his movies fall off such a cliff toward the end that you forget mm. just how strong the producers and Blazing Saddles and all these movies were, or Young Frankenstein. Whereas mm. Monty Python. Great couple of seasons, got a couple of albums, couple of songs, couple of movies, and they're they're off, and they leave us want it always leave your audience wanting a little bit more. Yeah, yeah, I think they themselves wanted a little bit more. I mean, uh, you know, they they probably much like the Beatles. They probably had more left in the tank. Yep. Uh, they probably could have had another five years of really good stuff, but uh, you know, personalities got in the way, and they. It didn't happen. Well, Gilliam suddenly is making movies like Time Bandit and yeah, Brazil, yeah, yeah, yeah. and Chapman yeah. decided to up and die from what, throat cancer, and so yeah, was, cancer, everybody's yeah. going their separate ways. And obviously, John Cleese. I mean, you see him and, uh, and Michael Palin and things like A Fish Called Wanda. So mm. they almost became like victims of their own success, where mm. it's hard to keep everybody together once everybody mm. starts to realize just how valuable they are as like a, as a commodity. Mm. Well, as I say, Cleese was a star before, and he was a star afterwards. He's still I mean, a star. I mean, he's doing like Harry Potter movies and yes, all kinds of stuff. Yes, and he's, yeah. and he's like, you know, he's always saying, um, I, I don't find them controversial at all, but he's always like making the news or getting or trending on Twitter because he's ha- had the audacity to say what, precisely what's on his mind in an interview and that sort of thing. And he he's not afraid mm. to stir up a little controversy just by speaking mm. plain good sense. Mm. But I mean, as a creative voice as well, he he'd done things before. And, you know, he did Faulty Towers in the middle of Python's existence and basically entered a, a higher sort of echelon than the rest of the Pythons. And then when he had got fed up with Python, he did A Fish Called Wanda. So he, he wasn't reliant on Python in the way that Terry Jones uh, and Palin and to a slightly lesser degree, Eric Idle, because Eric Idle did the rutt- uh, Ruttles and all but also, that stuff. I love how like Eric Idle, like in the, like eventually in the '90s, was like, "Well, if y'all don't ever want to do any more stuff, then I'm going off on my own and I'm doing musicals and so on and so forth." Mm. Like, I'm not going to tap the brakes and like yeah. keep a lot of like you know my creativity like bottled up just because y'all mm. can't figure out a way to collaborate anymore. So, yeah, but they, the 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 Ruttles, goddamn that shit. It's so, so <laughs> fucking funny. But I don't want to get uh, off, off no, track no, on that. it's too much. Yeah, so yeah, let's yeah. shift gears yeah. then into their debut feature film. We've already talked about it a little bit, but Monty sure. Python and the Holy Grail. Terry Jones and Terry Gilliam directing. And I love how like 
Terry Jones seems to have been better when it came to actually working with the actors and mm. working with the material, whereas Terry Gilliam made it a movie. I mean, anything anytime you see like a beautiful ship or a beautiful shot where mm. it's something that actually is pictorial and visual, it seems like there's mm. an interesting division of labor where they both were learning and eager to prove themselves. And it sounds mm. like a, a hellacious experience where everybody's kind of mm. cold and damp and fighting and pissed most of the time. Mm. But holy crap. I mean, I, I hadn't watched this movie in I don't know how many years because mm. I'd watched it a thousand times as a yeah, kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I fell into it so hard when I revisited it from the animation bits to the different performances mm. to Tim the Enchanter to just mm. so many lines that I've quoted a hundred million times over from like, you know, Jesus Christ, like all that kind of stuff. Yes. I, this movie, it hasn't aged a fucking second no. since the time of its release in 75. Mm. Yeah, it's... Up until, as I say, up until preparing for this, I would have said it was for me the funniest film ever made. I, I, I just, oh, I, it made me laugh probably more than anything I'd ever come across up to that point in my life. And I've been misquoting it my whole life. If you know what I mean, I, there are certain lines that have lodged themselves in my brain, like, you know, the runaway, runaway, that bunny's dynamite, and you know, you cheesy lot of electric donkey bottom biters, and all that stuff is just lodged in my brain from that first viewing. Uh, they certainly learned how to make a movie while they were making the movie. Um, yes, Terry Jones was very good at shooting comedy. He kept the thing moving. Terry Gilliam made it look like a movie. Um, they really thought that they were on the same page in terms of how they were going to do it. And when they actually came to doing it, that wasn't the case at all. Gilliam was slowing it down uh, just because he always wanted the right shot. So I think Terry Jones said he wanted to shoot it quickly. And Terry Gilliam said he wanted to shoot it right well, they had um, no money. I mean, that's the thing. It's like yeah. they're both right, but you got to operate within within the budget. <laughs> like they made yeah. it for like a couple hundred thousand pounds, which is yes, just astonishing. Yes. And the money came from Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd and Genesis. So they're not. It's very strange. Uh, when you look at sort of lists of greatest British movies of all time, perhaps now that's changed, but. Up until fairly recently, it might not have got on there because people don't think of it as a British film because of the way it was financed. It wasn't really connected to the British film industry. Um, but one of the interesting things about it as well is it is it is constructed out of sketches. And, and watching it over and over again, I realized that it is really is just a series of sketches. And their writing process is absolutely bizarre, which is that they would go away and just write sketches. And then I think uh, Michael Palin came up with a sketch which is the coconuts. Uh, it's Patsy <laughs> and King Arthur with the coconuts coming over the hill. And then, and then Terry Jones said, you know, let's, let's do an Arthurian legend. And then John Cleese had written uh, something about, you know, them looking for the grail in Harrods and they're looking for it in the grail department. And Terry Jones was annoyed about that and said, no, we need to make a real Arthurian legend. And so they just wrote these individual sketches and found a way to bind them together. Absolutely. And it works, it works. But actually, if you look at it, repeatedly you do realize that that whole sort of opening act with king arthur you know um uh you know going through the sort of bringing out your dead and then meeting yeah, the, a lot the, of them could be sketches and meaning they of are life. Sketches, like when they're yeah. talking about like you know like, like the different sections of meaning in life like fighting each mm. other you could yeah. take out like the fighting each other section from the movie from world war one yeah. and replace it with something from holy grail and it would totally yeah. fit just fine yeah no exactly so it is a string of sketches but the structure works 
perfectly and you don't really notice it. Um, but uh, there's a lovely documentary that's on, on the DVD that I have, which shows just how they used the castle that they had because they'd originally sought out castles all across Britain and then they were told I think by the Department for the Environment of Scotland that uh, what the things that they wanted to do uh, were not in keeping with the dignity of the fabric of the building that was the quote <laughs> I love that so like, these castles were like people have been like being like beheaded and disemboweled and so yes. on and so forth for it's centuries but a few jokes are wildly inappropriate absolutely <laughs> inappropriate yeah so so they ended up basically making the movie in one castle there's two but most of it's made in one a castle called castle dune and the documentary has palin and jones uh, probably it must be around 2001, I think. And th they go back um, and they show you just how they did it. And it's they would basically use a room and then completely redress that room and use it for a different scene and then redress it again and use it for a different scene. So, for example, the scene, you know, you've got Herbert, um, uh, which is played by Terry Jones, who's the sort of rather uh, effeminate son of the local lord. But father, you know, Michael, yeah. father. Yeah, Michael Palin says, uh, you know, son, all, one day all this could be yours. And he's like, oh, what, what the, the curtains? curtains? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, my little brother and I still, whenever we talk about, if we're talking about a girl who's particularly well endowed, my little yeah. brother would say, she's got huge trucks of land. Like, there's just certain lines <laughs> you cannot shake them and that you just yeah. carry them with you. And yeah. this movie's got, like, a thousand of those. I mean, just like yeah, there's so yeah. many bits. Like, I mean, the fight between uh, John Cleese and Terry Gilliam as knights before nice, the right King now. Arthur even arrives. I mean, it's so mm. badass. And so I was, as I was watching this, I was like, it's actually like a really good fight scene. But of course, I know like in the world of sports over in the UK, just a flesh wound. Like they're never gonna let that line die. Just it's gonna it's gonna stick around until the end of time. Yeah, no, it definitely did. But but talking about the the, the castle, what had happened is they they shot the that scene but then there's another scene where john cleese as sir lancelot is running through the castle hacking everybody to pieces and they use the same room for the sort of downstairs where the where the you know the wedding party's assembling so if you actually watch the movie closely you can see that he's running through the same room twice and you know they use corridors or they, they use an open courtyard as a corridor they just sort of film him um you know going closely along a wall and it becomes a corridor and it, it's incredibly clever how they just re reused every aspect of this castle over and over again to shoot you know castle anthrax um you know and, and all the other castles you know camelot the castle uh, anthrax <laughs> i mean that line which I, when i 12 or 13 i didn't appreciate but when you mm. hear her say oh we're just eight score blondes and brunettes between the ages of 16 and 19 and a half yes. i was like i mean now as a dirty old man i'm like oh my god this is the most filthy fucking shit i've ever seen yes, yes, yes. and people might have a problem with that now as well oh my, it, i mean yeah we live in the um, uh, these periods come and go and there's like what's like water in a bathtub sloshing back and forth and mm -hmm. sometimes you've got censorship coming or authoritarianism coming from the left sometimes you have it coming from the right but in any era there's always going to be people saying don't write that book don't make that movie don't tell that joke mm -hmm. and when you look back historically they're always wrong like when i visited yes. the vatican last summer they were showing how like in around like like 15 1600 a bunch of people in their infinite wisdom decided to change and improve all these greek statues from 1500 years prior by mm. adding fig leaves and it's like yes they were wrong to do that and i'm sure they had a million reasons people are always going to have reasons to change films or object to films or object to any works of art mm. i don't think i've ever found an example from history where the people who were opposed were wrong 
Yeah. Oh, sorry. We're no. right. Sorry. I'm contradicting myself. You get my point. <laughs> I'll get through my point. righteous no, no. indignation. Expression, expression is very important. And the thing is, is over time, the dross falls away. But it's a kind of there's a censorship that just occurs through time passing. Things that are irrelevant just get forgotten. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I, I don't want to jump ahead too far. But with, with with Brian, of course, that they were worried that not that the film was controversial, but that it would be dismissed. And the conversation we were talking about with Malcolm Muggeridge and the Bishop of Southwark having a go at them is they were saying it's 10th rate and it, it won't be remembered. And here we are talking about it. Yeah. And uh, I, I think I think that you and I have talked about some of the greatest British comedies of all time. And I think for me, it's Life of Brian and Grail. And I would put the Lady Killers in there. I don't know whether you agree. The, the, oh, the I love Lady Killers. Fuck yeah. Yeah. And with Nell and I, which is another handmade film. Um so it has lasted and it will last. And the thing that's exciting about it is it's still saying things that are going to touch a nerve and that people are afraid to say. And they might not be about religion now. I mean, there's that scene. I'm talking about Brian, so I've jumped, I have jumped my head. But about um, uh, the, the sort of leftist group of communists and Eric Idle, who wants to be a woman. And there's the line... Um, you know, I want to be a woman because I want to have babies, but you can't have babies. Well, all right, we can all agree that you can't have babies, but you can have the right to have babies. I mean, that conversation uh, is going on right edgy. now, every yeah. day. And I was, I went, as stuff. I was watching it, I couldn't believe how mm. they were 40 years ahead of the conversation. I, yes. that, I was floored because you mm. hear people having these conversations on a daily basis and mm. yeah, we shall fight the oppressors for your right to have babies, brother, sister. Sorry, I mean, like, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, the, the correcting of language in terms like, I love it when you see people who are on the same side, who are constantly raking each other across the coals, correcting mm. their language and terminology. And here you've got them making fun of it in 1979. Yeah, it's it's way ahead of its time. And I, I wonder now whether people watching the film then would have taken the side of the Klee's character who says, you know, he needs to get back in touch with reality or something like that. But now I think people would take the side of the Judith character, oh yeah, who is fight, fighting for the for the person's right to have babies, even though they can't have babies. I mean, that's going down a very political wormhole, and I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna tell anyone what my are you suggesting is, but... that you might actually get in trouble online by talking about I, gender and sexuality? Like oh, I, I can't God. imagine anything like that ever happening. Yeah, mm. but, that, but that's the thing is like when you hear people losing their shit over certain mm. topics and correcting mm. language, I feel like. That's the best time for brilliant comedians to step in because all like uh, social and political kind of, uh, I guess, satire in these movies aside, the jokes still work. And I feel like comedy ages really quick. I mean, comedy is like like a like a like a fresh piece of fruit. I mean, very mm. few of them withstand the test of time before the jokes mm. seem hopelessly outdated, especially even some of my favorite stand up comedy. I don't think they've necessarily faded because I'm outraged by what they're saying. We mm. just Comedy changes. But for mm. whatever reason, these movies, they still pass mm. that great six laugh test. And I would say it's like a 60 or 600 laugh test where you find yourself laughing hysterically involuntarily. And that's insanely mm. rare. Name any American comedies from the 70s that make you laugh as hard as Monty Python on the Holy Grail. I can't mm. think of one. I, I mean, from the 70s, I don't know. Some Marx Brothers stuff does. Yeah, maybe I mean, not. But they're, they're definitely the exception. But I'm thinking just yeah. in terms of contemporaries of Money, no. Python, and the Holy Grail. It's hard mm. to think of any American comedies from the 70s. I mean, there's some movies like Carnal Knowledge, which make me laugh, but it's not a comedy. Mm. It's like this really evil, dark movie about relationships. I just laugh mm. because I'm a sick fuck. 
Mm. But like, <laughs> it's just it's a rare thing to find movies that still make you howl forty five years after the fact. But well, yeah, I'm, I'm going to dig myself in a hole. I'm, I'm going to mention the 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 ultimate prior Woody Allen. That stuff made made me laugh hysterically. Oh, God, when yeah. I when I came across that, Love and Death, I think was his first film I watched. Again, I'm I'm not And it holds up you know, really well. It, it's death. really hilariously funny, but that is sort of like a modern day Marx Brothers movie in, in a sense. And it has the historical setting. And banana is, still makes me laugh hard. Yeah, yeah, Annie yeah. Hall makes me laugh hard. Like Manhattan's mm. less of an overt comedy, but it still makes me laugh hard. So yeah, mm. fair point. Of his of the people working in America in the seventies. I think his comedy has aged the best in terms of just like the, the maximum impact it still has. Because we did a mm. Woody Allen episode on Wrong Reel a couple of years ago, and I revisited mm. Love and Death for the first time like in 20 years. Mm. And I was flat. It knocked me flat. I couldn't believe mm. how strong it was. And I liked mm. it much more at like age 40 than I did like at age 20. Mm. Yeah. That was actually – watching that film was very like watching Holy Grail for me. I was laughing, and I didn't quite understand what was being done to me by the comedy. I was laughing without really – being able to engage with it intellectually, I was just laughing. Um, so yeah, that was a sort of watershed moment for me. But I think one of the reasons why Python stands up, I think, is just because silly doesn't really go out of date. And yeah, they, what they do you do? Silly. Nibble your bum? I mean, like uh, yes, yeah. <laughs> and also they were really surreal. I mean, there's no. I think one of the things is that, and I was thinking about you know what they've influenced, and and no one has really taken the ball of Python's style of comedy and run with it. Like, you can see how it's splintered off into different things. You can see that they've influenced this or that or the other. Yeah, but, like Russell Brand you know, and Steve Coogan are huge admirers, and they yes. haven't tried to ape their style, but they've no. been very inspired by. Yes. Well, and I think some comedians, because their style is, uh, the Python style is so well-defined, is a lot of comedians deliberately avoid copying them. Oh, hell So yeah. I don't think that there is... It, you know, there hasn't been, like with someone like Tarantino, there hasn't been the endless knockoffs to the point where that when you then go back and watch Reservoir Dogs or Pulp Fiction, uh, that may not be the case now, but there was a certain point at which they just didn't seem as no, fresh. Late 90s, I stopped watching yeah. Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction yeah. because there's so many knockoffs that it eroded yeah. the impact of the films. And I was like, exactly. right, I need to give these this whole style mm. of storytelling a fucking break mm. because I can't handle all mm. the just this style of storytelling anymore. That hasn't happened to Python. No, not at, not at all. I mean, because it's just it too, it's too hard to do. Like, you, yeah, yeah. <laughs> how are you going to find such a unique collection of individuals who can do this? Yes. I mean, like there have been many sketch comedy shows and movies since, but none have tried to touch the same train. Because it's a weird thing where Monty Python and the Holy Grail, even if you take out all the jokes in a strange way, mm. it still really works well as a fantasy movie. Like I love fantasy, yeah. but yeah, between yeah, the yeah. animation, like I mean, watching Tim the Enchanter standing on a mountaintop. Mm throwing balls of fire and mm -hmm. like blowing things up. I was like, that's actually a really good scene of a wizard just sh just showing off their skills. And like, yeah. it works as a fantasy scene. Yeah, and he's, he's got a rocket launcher on the end of his staff as well. I'm quite, yeah. I'm quite, quite keen on that. Yeah, it, it's a really tight movie. I mean, uh, in terms of the sort of post-production, I think they had something like 13 screenings and initially it was disastrous and, and nobody was very impressed by it. And I, I read Michael Palin's diary and he, he said it was one of the nights where Python flopped. But they, well, they would invite kept... their friends in, like, is this good? Is this working? They needed to show yeah, yeah. strangers. And then you get the honest, yes. real reactions. Yes, no, that's right. So it, they did 13 previews and it just got tighter and tighter and tighter. And when you watch it now, there is not a wasted second. It's a tight 90 minutes. And, and for, you're right. You forget about the jokes, even though it's hysterically funny. But the story 
pulls you and drags you right through to the end. There's there, there's not a flat moment in that movie. I mean, like Sir Galahad on that dark and stormy night where he's oh. like digging through the storm through the thorns, yeah. and you hear it's like mm. raining, and you're hearing screams and like howling of wolves. It's like mm. this feels like John Borman's Excalibur. Like it would fit in John Borman's Excalibur with like Percival looking for the Grail. And yeah. that's what's astonishing now is that that scene is so atmospheric and so eerie, which, of course, then he sees the grail above the castle anthrax and the, the scene changes in tone <laughs> abruptly. But I think that's another thing that makes this movie so enduringly powerful is that every once in a while, they're like, all right, well, these are our myths. These are our legends. Like, let's 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 do them right. Mm. One thing I, I, we should talk about is uh, the great Neil Innes, who is another person, sadly, who died I think at the end of last year, but he wrote uh, all of the songs in um, in Holy Grail. And all the, the, the round great, table. Uh, that, <laughs> but the the bit that I really like is when he's uh, Eric Idle, Eric Idle's minstrel, and he's singing the the song of Brave Sir Robin. Yeah. So each of the knights went their separate ways. Sir Robin rode north through the dark forest of Ewing, accompanied by his favourite minstrels. Bravely bold Sir Robin brought forth from Camelot. He was not afraid to die. Oh, brave Sir Robin. He was not at all afraid to be killed in nasty ways. Brave, 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 brave Sir Robin. He was not in the least bit scared to be mashed into a pulp. Or to have his eyes gouged out and his elbows broken. To have his kneecap split and his body burned away. And his limbs all hacked and mangled, brave Sir Robin. His head smashed in and his heart cut out and his liver removed and his bowels unplugged and his nostrils raped and his bottom burnt off and his penis... That's, that's, uh, that's enough music for now, lads. <laughs> Looks like there's dirty work afoot. And it has lines like, you know, with his bottom burnt off and his nostrils raped and all that sort of stuff. And it's just... Yeah, yeah, as I, a little kid, I needed subtitles to get it because I missed oh, like 90% yeah. of it because it's so quick. But yeah, it's yeah. Uh, those bits are delightful. But as little kids, we would try and sing it, but no one... We're stupid 13-year-old American kids. We couldn't mm. remember the words, but we love the tune. Yes, but, but to have so many talented people so tightly packed together and so capable of doing so many different things... Because they were really good actors. I mean, Michael Palin is, a, is so versatile as an actor, and you you see he's them terrifying playing, in fucking Brazil. Like he gets yeah, like he genuinely is, yeah. ups, like unnerving toward the end of the mm. film. Mm. I mean, he's become this very sweet sort of travel documentarian in the UK. He that's that's really what he does now. But uh, you know, you can see him playing you know five different roles, and sometimes he's playing characters talking to each other, and it never occurs to you you don't really think about the fact that it's the same person. He's so capable of differentiating himself. Yeah. I think idol perhaps plays the most roles in it, but there's like all these, it's fun mm. to like look at the tallies, like who has the most, most deaths and who has the most roles and so on and so mm. forth. But what I always love is when you're watching the scenes now and you try to pick up the moments where you can tell they're trying to like contain their own laughter. Yeah. Like during yeah, the yeah. burn witch burning sequence where Eric idol is biting down on a scythe because if he doesn't bite down on the scythe, he's just going to laugh hysterically or yeah. You see Michael yeah, Palin yeah. trying to hide his laughter as well. I mean, they're having so much fucking fun, mm. and that's what makes it so contagious. It makes it makes it work. If if they're laughing, then other people are gonna laugh. And I, it, stand, that's what I mean. Keep stand up so strong is that you have an audience there to let you know. But mm. if your performers are laughing hysterically on the set, it's, it's mm. a sign that you're on to something. 
Well, they trusted each other, didn't they? The the idea that they could make each other corpse. That's what you know they call it. Uh, Palin said that making John Cleese corpse was was the proudest thing that you could do because it was very hard to make him laugh. And of course, they would test all their material out on each other. They would write it and they would read it to each other. Uh, and they were they weren't kind to each other. You know, they would be really, really honest. And I think that that grinding intellectual process means that the quality of the material is really very, very high. You know, you're, you're one person reading it. You've got six, five other people who are going to critique it for you, possibly take it off you, make it better or, th or make you throw it away. Well, it'd be like if we as podcasters mm. gave our episodes to our friends who are also podcasters ahead of posting them like, all right, go go nuts. Where does the mm. episode suck? Where does it drag? Where is it boring? Yeah. We, the result would be much tighter podcasts. They'd be shorter, but they'd probably yes. be, have bigger impacts. Because right mm. now, like, we all kind of run our podcasts the way we like. But sometimes mm. having some mean, tough collaborators can uh, raise your game. It's certainly good to have uh, outside opinions. Well, I'm just looking at my notes for this, and I'm just seeing, I mean, there's so much to get into, but like, so many great lines like, oh, I thought we were mm. an autonomous collective, like this little thing which leads <laughs> into you know, some of the jokes in uh, mm. Life of Brian, or the things in the credits about all the llamas and the mooses, which I couldn't Well, do, that was really funny. I couldn't even read it as a kid because movie. the VHS would be so blurry and so grainy. I couldn't mm -hmm. really enjoy that. But now, mm. like pristinely restored, you can really get mm. into the, the weird opening credits. Yeah, it has the funniest credits I think ever made. And I think it's the only time I would say I'm glad that Terry Gilliam didn't do the credit sequence because the whole stuff about, you know, uh, I think the idea is that Swedish people or Norwegian people have overtaken the credits. And there's a line, lots of lines about what mooses have been doing. And there's one line, suggestive moose poses suggested by. Yeah. And then somebody's <laughs> name. That that stuff is really, really good. Um, but I think it's worth exploring the, the relationship between Gilliam and Jones and the crew, because it, what ultimately ended up happening was that Gilliam ended up sort of picking the shots and Jones ended up uh, dealing with the actors. Yeah, and then Cleese was like, we're not pieces of paper on a board. You can't just like yes. rearrange us in the frame the way you do your cardboard cutouts. But Gilliam liked the shot to look good. And there are shots yeah. like when the, when the cops pull up at the end and the army's charging down mm. where they only had a handful of people there to shoot it. It works because of Gilliam's framing. It, it quite, yeah, yeah. And there's a there's a lovely quote as well, which I don't think is in the documentary, where apparently Gilliam was waiting for a shaft of light to hit John Cleese's helmet, and Cleese says to me like, "I've been here for four hours. What do you want? The moon and stars to arrange themselves around my head." So yeah, they were cold and they were they were grumpy, and yeah, I mean, they're talking yeah. about you could tell what time of day it was by how far the damp had made its way up their their clothes because. Apart from uh, Arthur, they're all basically wearing wool painted to look like metal. And so they're mm. just standing outside in like mud and water all day. And the water would just slowly but surely work, their way up, work its way up to their crotch. Yeah. And Chapman uh, was not really in a good place. He was sort of going through withdrawal. He, he, he had tried to get off the bottle uh, yeah. prior to the filming. He got the and DTs. So he had DTs, yeah. So when he was the, the first thing they shot was the Bridge of Death scene and he couldn't he couldn't go across and he was sort of trembling and shaking. Yeah. And and then uh, I think he basically tried to dose himself. He tried to control his alcohol intake so that he could function, but that he wouldn't kind of fall apart at the seams. But he was constantly shouting at Terry Jones and Terry Gilliam for not being in McNaughton, who had shot the TV series and the film and, and now for com something completely different. And if you see that there's a uh, some footage 
sort of behind the scenes footage shot for a show called Film Night in, in the UK. And you see him being interviewed and he's got bloodshot eyes and he's rambling and you can he's actually funny. He's being sort of subversive and surreal, but you can tell he's really not well. Uh, so, and yet he somehow manages to play Arthur with so much dignity mm. and integrity and mm. like when he fights the black knight and he's like leaning forward to do like those elaborate blocks like down by his foot and mm. just like he's so confident and you can see you know terry gilliam kind of like rooting from 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 behind like as a yeah. little fantasy like a little D D playing like fantasy mm. freak as a kid like those scenes played for me pretty well as like just straight mm. up Arthurian legends like writ large mm. No, exactly. Uh, w- one of the reasons why they keep cutting away from Graham Chapman is he couldn't do one more than one line at a time. So so he does a line and then they would cut to something else. That's how it's edited. And then they have to whisper the next line to him. So that's why it constantly cuts backwards and forwards is he couldn't do more than one line at a time. But he really is the perfect leading man. He gives the whole he's the sort of sane center of a completely insane film. Uh, and I don't think any of the others probably could, couldn't really have done that. Uh, I'm sure maybe Cleese would have liked to have had a go at it, but I mm. like Cleese as Lancelot quite a bit. I like him as Tim and the Enchanter. I like yeah. him as the Black Knight. I like him as like, you know, as a, an outrageous Frenchman. Like, I mean, Cleese gets plenty of moments to, to, to shine. So, but what's funny is mm. I was a little kid, I did struggle to figure out like who was playing, which I mean, this, I mean, at age 43 watching it now, I'm like, all right, that's Michael Palin, et cetera, and so forth. But mm. I got so immersed in the story that it never even really occurred to me that these six these six performers were playing the majority of the roles. Like mm. I mean, like Terry Gilliam as the guy like at the at the bridge of death. Yes. It never even occurred to me that was Terry Gilliam until well no. into adult life. Mm. He he's he's like a sort of Lon Chaney Jr., isn't he? he he's really good at playing gargoyles. Uh, if he wasn't a if he wasn't a movie director, he would have been very good in horror movies. Absolutely, he, he can pull really strange faces, and he wears makeup very well and he's very disturbing this it is him he can punch himself over and contort his face in a way that's funny and weird in a way that none of the others could have done well he's got four deaths in this movie he's as the green knight with the sword through the face sir yeah, Bors, sure. he's decapitated by the killer rabbit oh that's the, him i didn't actually know that was him. yeah the animator major heart attack and the bridge keeper when he's cast into the gorge of eternal peril. But <laughs> all right, well, I could talk about Holy Grail until I'm I got a long gray beard. But are there any final words on Holy Grail before we push on to Life of Brian? Because I feel like I mean, all these movies deserve like an episode unto themselves. But we do have a, a finite amount of time to work with, and I want to make sure that we give uh, the next two flicks their due as well. No, I feel like we've covered it in in plenty of detail it's one of the funniest british movies ever made it's great looking and it works as you say as a fantastic fantasy movie aside from the comedy um it's, it's a classic indeed all right well let's see it we've talked about it quite a bit already let's dig into 1979 monty mm. python's life of brian a movie that famously basically got made because uh george harrison wanted to see it so he, he threw down a bunch of cash to help it get made cheer up brian you know what they say some things in life are bad. They can really make you mad. Other things just make you swear and curse. When you're chewing on life's gristle, don't grumble. Give a whistle. And this'll help things turn out for the best. Hey. Always look on the bright side of life. 
Always look on the light side of life If life seems jolly rotten, there's something you've forgotten And that's to laugh and smile and dance and sing When you're feeling in the dumps, don't be silly chumps Just purse your lips and whistle, that's the thing And always look on the bright side of life Always look on the right side of life For life is quite absurd And death's the final word You must always face the curtain with a bow Forget about your scene Give the audience a grin Enjoy it, it's your last chance anyhow So always look on the bright side of death And when it comes to social satire, it's hard to think of a more incisive film than Life of Brian, but it is just delightful. I, mean, I remember seeing it for the first time, I was like 13 or 14, and being so bewildered and confused by like the, like the full frontal nudity and the aliens mm. and all those things. But now when you watch it, it's like just little things. Like Even when I was watching the documentary when you're, they're showing little clips and you're hearing people in the background just like, don't you want to haggle? Like just little things like that, these mm. ongoing jokes. It makes me fucking shriek with just glee and joy. And every time I get drunk, I end up talking about biggest dickus and things like that. Like oh, it, yeah. It's become a, a huge mm. part of me. But set the stage. What is the life of Brian? Why was it so controversial? Like, what, what, how did this movie come about? Just give us the, the 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 opening salvo or the opening remarks. Invite people into this. Movie. No, no, sure. So, again, when you start reading of what the Pythons have said, it's very difficult to trace where things really began because they will have totally different memories of what happened. But, but a kind of broad brush version would be that Eric Idle was at one point asked what their next movie would be after Grail, and he said, as a joke, Jesus Christ lust for glory. That's the, the famous quote. Uh, and then they they kind of joked around with the idea, and that Terry Gilliam says that he and Eric Idle were in a, a bar in Amsterdam, and they were joking about, you know, Jesus on the cross, Jesus was a carpenter, and how the carpentry on the cross hadn't been done very well, and how the cross beam kept falling off, and yeah. he was sort of the carpenters, all these kind of jokes. Uh, and they did at one point seriously consider making a film about the life of Christ. They did lots and lots of research and realized that Christ was a pretty solid guy, that his teachings are not funny, they're truthful. And they, they I mean, they could do lots of cheap jokes. Like one of the jokes was, you know, trying to book tables uh, for the Last Supper and, you know, the. At the okay, we um, can do like, uh, like three, three tables of four. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> all that yeah, yeah, yeah. And, but, but, oh, they all need to be facing the same way, you know, that sort of stuff. Um, and, and then at one point, they were going to do someone as the 13th disciple who was always just missing the miracles. You know, he'd be buying fish at a market while Jesus was walking, walking on the water just behind him and he just turns around and he's missed it and that sort of thing. But they realized that the the real sort of meat of the comedy was the was the on the peripheries. Uh, and then they came up with the idea for a parallel uh, life of Christ. Um, and so Brian, the character Brian was born. Um, a, a, and the idea was to take sort of elements of life in modern Britain and bring those into a biblical setting, which would give you lots of comedy. 
Um, and then I suppose through the writing process, they ended up with this theme of thinking for yourself. And, and they were very aware, as I said earlier, they were very aware of the risk of being charged with blasphemy. I mean, it was a very, very present danger that they could be imprisoned for I mean, for as it. John Cleese points out in that television show, 400 years prior, they would have been burned <laughs> for this movie. Mm-hmm. So, And there are a lot of people yeah. who probably wouldn't have minded seeing them burned for it because they were no. horribly offended by it. No. So so they, they wrote the script and, uh, and then they went to Barbados to polish it. And they say that was one of the nicest experiences of their lives. They were at a house called Heron Bay, which apparently Winston Churchill had stayed at. They would hang out with the likes of Mick Jagger. Keith Moon would be on the beach waiting for them when they'd finished writing for the day. Uh, it was a lovely, lovely experience. And there was a guy uh, in the same sort of area called Barry Spikings, who was a, a a head honcho at EMI, which is the sort of um, the British film industry really at the time. And he wanted to see their script. He agreed to make it and on a kind of on a handshake, really. Um, and then they started building sets and they, you know, they started the whole process of making the film. And then the script finally came across the desk of a guy called Lord Delfont, who actually was the head of EMI. And then he said something like, what are you trying to do? Crucify me and uh, withdrew all of the money. And then they needed to look for alternative funds. Um, Eric Idle and their manager, sorry, the producer of the movie, a guy called John Goldstone, um, went to L.A. And they say it was like trying to sell springtime for Hitler. People would take meetings with them because they love the Pythons, but they would not give them any money. And Holy Grail had been a massive hit. I mean, commercially, it was a smash. And they made it for no money, and it was just adored. Mm. It's the idea, and it's the idea that the Pythons really fought against, which is that um, there are certain things that you just aren't supposed to say. So no matter how successful you are, you just can't make this movie. And then, as you say, thank thank God for... um, the great George Harrison for putting up all the money. So he he pawned his house and he pawned his offices. Yeah, it's not like he just wrote a check. He no. actually had to take some risk and yeah. had to take a hit with in terms mm-hmm. of his lifestyle, career, etc. Mm. There would have been consequences if the movie had not performed. Mm. And Terry Jones says just how grateful he was that he didn't actually know that. He just thought he's a beetle. He's got endless pots of money and it won't. it doesn't matter really. Um, because he would have been too terrified if he'd actually known that information. Um, but, you know, so the, the the quote from Eric Idle is, it's the most anyone's ever paid for a cinema ticket. <laughs> <laughs> He's probably right. I mean, I love that idea of just like having skin in the game, putting money where your mouth is. It's mm. like there are a lot of people in this world who like to talk about what they would like to see made. And George Harrison's like, all right, well, I had this great streak of luck to be part of like the mm. Fab Four. Why mm. not leverage that to mm-hmm. get behind these people who are like basically the, the 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 comedy equivalent of what we pulled off back in the uh, in the nineteen sixties? Yeah, he loved them. He absolutely loved them, and he wrote a con- congratulatory note to them after the first ever episode. They cut one of their albums in yeah. Apple Studios, so they'd encountered him that way. Apparently, Paul McCartney would would stop recording sessions. I guess we're talking about post Beatles. Would stop recording sessions just to watch. Um, just to watch Python, and you know he was he he was in some of their sketches. He performed live the the lumberjack lumberjack sketch with them. He would be one of the Mounties, but he would just quietly be there. He wouldn't sort of draw attention to himself. Um, and he's in Life of Brian as Mr. Papadopoulos, the guy renting out the mount for the Sermon on the Mount. So he was he was a 
he was a sort of peripheral character in in the history of python up until that point anyway and you know we have him to thank as well as uh, the life of Jesus Christ for the existence of the life of Brian. You're mentioning Sermon on the Mount. It reminds me so much of that. I mean, there's an interview I strongly recommend everybody hunt down. It's readily available on YouTube where John Cleese was talking about how nobody ever told him as like a kid when he was having all these lessons hammered home to him that, you know, the Sermon on the Mount was written down 30 years later. It's like, well, wait a second. Like, <laughs> well, mm. that, that's actually an important detail. Like, you know, if you're mm. acting like it's the most sublime utterance by a human being of all time, well, we should mm. know that it's, being filtered through somebody. I mean, if you asked me to write down what you said 30 seconds ago, mm. I would struggle to get it word for word. And mm. I, But I love how, like, but rather than in any way, shape, or form try to poke fun at the philosophy and ideas of Jesus, they do find a way to squeeze the comedy out of those scenes by just having mm. somebody who's so far in the back, they can't quite hear what he says and they're telling them to speak up. Like, there's nothing more universal than somebody saying, speak up, any culture, any, any era. Somebody's going to be able to relate to that. Mm. And when people claim to be offended by this, I think they're manufacturing almost recreational outrage because if you mm. actually are watching it, mm. it's about so much more. It's not making fun of Christians. It's not making no. fun of Jesus. It's making mm. fun of people. And that is. Is, that is the root of the matter. And I think you really have to go through like mental gymnastics and like contortions to try and find a justification for being outraged by this film. Yeah, the, what, they, what they did, they did very, very carefully. They set Jesus up as a separate character and did not in any way, shape or form, make fun of what he's saying. Uh, they just used s sort of stock British characters, uh, you know, standing on the peripheries, calling each other big nose. And there's that wonderful line, you know, oh, I'm, I'm glad the meek are getting something. They do have a hell of a time. Yeah. You know, th th things like that. And, uh, you know, you, you hear people saying things like that in Britain. It's, it's, it's a very... Um, very very familiar so they they set up this adjacent storyline i think one of the more intelligent things i heard said about this was uh that one of the reasons why people become upset is that it uses the iconography of the bible and that's biblical iconography from movies of course um, because none of us were there clearly um and it has this kind of you have a gut reaction to it if you're religious, which is that they're using the crucifix, they're using the nativity. And actually, I can sort of understand that, but that's not an intellectual response. That's actually a completely unintellectual response. Yeah, especially um, when you have like roadside tourist traps selling plastic crosses and that sort of thing. Mm. So it's like if that's not profane, then neither mm. is Eric Idle singing a happy-go-lucky song <laughs> on the cross at the end of the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's a very positive message. I mean, uh, Eric Idle says just it's about the human spirit. Yeah, just give a little whistle. <laughs> it's about the human spirit. It's about saying you can do anything to us and, you know, there's, there's, you know we're still going to be cheery. And uh, he, apparently he based that, that sort of character, which he calls Mr. Cheeky, on the sort of electricians and things like that that worked on Python, that they would be cheery and happy even though they were standing out in the pouring rain or they were up late at night. And again, it was a very a very British attitude. Which oh, is he's, that he's we'll so positive. Like, he's like, all right, good, out the door, line on the left, one cross each. And he's like, crucifixion? Yeah. He's like, oh, no, freedom, actually. And he's like, what? He's like, yes, yeah, they yes. said I hadn't done anything. I could go and live on an island somewhere. And he's like, oh, that's very nice. Well, off you go. Then he's like, no, I'm just pulling your leg. It's crucifixion, really. <laughs> I mean, like, that whole yeah. bit, it's so... I love gallows humor. Gallows humor, mm. just it, for whatever reason, it really tickles my funny mm. bone. And yeah, mm. Mr. Cheeky, he's one of the best ingredients of this flick. He is, an, a, you know, Palin and Terry Jones wrote that sort of last third of the movie. He said once he had the Pontius Pilate scene, uh, 
then he knew where they were going and he wrote the rest of the film with Terry Jones very, very quickly. So he sort of cracked that last act of the movie himself. Um, and then you've got Eric Idle coming in with the song. And amusingly, they all thought the song kind of sucked. They were not impressed by it at all, which is well, it, absolutely bizarre. You need bizarre. the facial expression. Mm. There's so much like blind sincerity. Mm. It's almost like he's a little bit dim, but it's like he's but it's lovable and optimistic all at once. And then mm. when you see Terry Gilliam down the row with this big stupid grin on his face, kind of like nodding his head and enjoying the song, mm. like somehow that the like the idiot man child persona that they're both adopting like hammers home the comedy. And comedy is a strange thing where comedy is so delicate and so fragile where one little tiny change can bring the whole structure crumbling down. But mm. I feel like Idol and Gilliam managed to find the comedy in that song because. You, this, it could have been a cheesy kind of sentimental moment, but because mm. they make these guys kind of simplistic in a way, it makes it a little in a strange way. I, it's, it's like I'm breaking the joke, even trying to explain it, but something about yes. their expressions makes it work for me. Mm. I think it's one of the best endings to a comedy ever. I mean, it, it's just, it just leaves you with a perfect feeling um, that, again quite you know sort of deep and dark here but that death isn't actually necessarily something to be afraid of it's the idea of i think the line is you come from nothing and you leave with nothing so what have you lost nothing and it's the idea of i think gilliam said it was a very buddhist idea um and it's a very positive happy message but it's also like a song for like young children talking about like like something about something laugh and dance and sing like it's a song you yeah. can sing to like little children like in preschool mm. and they're like oh mm. yeah and it's like there's something yeah, about yeah, yeah. that innocence to it that makes mm. it all the more hysterical because they all are <laughs> being crucified mm. singing this really innocent tune and mm. i agree when it comes to comedy endings i can't think of an ending that tops that it brings the whole it, like once again like for a group that was notorious for avoiding punchlines to close out a mm. scene, somehow mm. man, they managed to find the perfect punchline for this film. Mm. Because one of the problems with, well, I don't think it is a problem, but one of the problems that Eric Idle says with The Holy Grail is it doesn't have a proper ending. I love I, the I like the, the ending, Grail. but it pisses a lot of people off. Yeah, I find it audacious and hilarious, and it's incredibly Python-esque, the idea that, uh, you know, a, a character that's sort of not in the world of the film then is sort of instigates another part of the film you know one part of the film ransacking another part of the film it's so pythonesque and, and also the idea of not giving you an ending they've run out of things to say so let's just end it and they've also and, run out of money you're not going to get a big yeah. battle sequence yeah, like, yeah, i showed yeah. it to my little brother when he was like mm. eight or nine mm. and he's i don't think he's ever forgiven me because he couldn't mm. believe that there wasn't a battle scene at the end mm. i was like no but this is just, we're, if you want the battle scene watch excalibur it's there like, yes yeah now, I, I remember watching that and just gasping at the audacity of it uh, and I think it's perfect and it's very, very in keeping with Python. But here they came up with a perfect ending. Um, and actually, you know, the song really took on a life of its own. I read Eric Idle's autobiography, which is called it's called Always Look on the Bright Side of Life. And uh, it's about how the song led him to, you know, sing it in front of sort of crowned heads across the world. He sang it at the London Olympics. Um, it, it really opened all kinds of doors for him and really changed his life. And it's just a little song that he wrote very, very quickly. I mean, it's almost like when George Harrison started writing his own songs for the Beatles. Like, mm. it took mm. a little while for people to notice that George Harrison was writing some of the best songs the Beatles created toward the end of the 60s. Mm. But mm. now, like, oh my God, well, like, 
Paul and John were this great duo, and George mm. was so young when they first started, but you see this gradual emergence of his own path. And I think the same thing happens with Eric Idle, because by the time you get to Meaning a Life with that Life of Brian, you've got someone else singing the opening song, but with Meaning a Life, when you've got Eric Idle singing in the opening song, it's mm. perfectly appropriate. Like, fuck yes, Eric Idle singing a song. That's precisely what I want. And it's a very recognizable style, isn't it? You, you, you can even if he wasn't singing, it, I think you'd know that he'd written it. There, there's something about the way he writes. And of course, he went on to become a big Broadway impresario. And I was talking about seeing them, seeing them live. He orchestrated that whole show. He, he really directed it, controlled it, was involved in helping select the material, you know, picked the um, the choreographer was the same choreographer that did uh, the, the meaning of life. And, it, you know, so that that was became very much his thing i think he be started out as a sketch comedian and be became someone much more connected to music and and writing lyrics and really carved and out music and class. comedy go together like chocolate mm. and peanut butter and it's mm. it's amazing that it's not exploited or combined more frequently mm. but getting down into the text of this movie i feel like at a time where around the world for sometimes justifiable reasons and sometimes for less so depending upon one's point of view like obviously there's a lot of the conversation about oppression and so on and so forth and this movie explores a bunch of different aspects of the idea of being oppressed like we talked about earlier about this whole scene about uh whether or not uh this character has the right to have babies and then he's like mm. well, what's the point of fighting for his right to have babies when he can't have babies like it's a symbol yeah. for our struggle against oppression and it's one of those things where when people feel justifiably like angry about a really important topic i think that's where they don't want to hear people poking fun at this idea of whether or not you're being oppressed or not but like i don't know i don't know if there's a better written scene than mm. when they're talking about overthrowing the oppressor and like what have they ever given us it's like well the yeah. aqueduct and like oh sanitation, yeah, yeah, yeah. like roads irrigation medicine education it's like i mean it reminds me a little bit of like in america like antifa today where they'll block off traffic and talking about like they're so oppressed but it's like yes but you're also enjoying the education and the public baths and the, the nighttime safety and the medicine and mm -hmm. all these things that you claim you're so oppressed by. And once again, it's, it's comedy that's aged remarkably well. And I just feel like mm -hmm. those scenes will always play in any era, in any context. And there's also the scene, isn't there, where um, Graham Chapman as Brian sort of takes pride in his Jewishness and calls himself a hebe and a hook nose and a Red Sea pedestrian and things like that. And that kind of reminded me of Lenny Bruce, you know, the idea of taking back these words not being afraid of them but actually Absolutely. reclaiming them and i i mean obviously we're both you know 40 year old white men so we're not supposed wasps. to say <laughs> but uh but Dude, is that word even used in the uk and america people use wasp all the time on the east coast no but... i barely even know what it is Gotcha. That's interesting because when I mentioned it when I was on uh, doing an episode with uh, Simon O'Neill, I was like, "Oh yeah, like I'm a, I'm a wasp." I was like, like Irish. Obviously, they're very acutely aware of who's a Protestant and who's a Catholic. But yes. I didn't know if that was like a strictly American thing. But on the East Coast, obviously, we have a shitload of people who are here because the Brits came over. And I mean, like, I come from Virginia. I mean, Jamestown was like colonized mm -hmm. like in 1604, 1606. So you have a lot of people in Virginia who are very proud of the fact that they are white Anglo-Saxon Protestants going back from to come from England. But um, mm -hmm. I never quite know if that word is uh, familiar to folks. I've I've heard it, but I don't. I have a sort of inclination as to what it means, but I don't exactly know what it means. Like in Caddyshack, when they're uh, when they're christening this boat, they say we W the Flying Wasp, and they you know they hit the bowsprit and it snaps off and things like that. But obviously, yeah. that country called culture that is being skewered and satirized in uh, Caddyshack, mm. that is wasp culture to a T. Okay, okay, 
Okay, so that's a bit like the sort of bowler-headed bowler-headed gents in uh, Python. That's a very British thing, whereas Wasp is a, a very American thing. But it, it must be. But it's one of the things mm. where now now I know that um uh, that perhaps I need to give context when I use the word because I, in an era where everybody's so preoccupied with identity, once again, it's like all right, well, I'm a wasp. Like <laughs> there's no getting around. <laughs> there's no avoiding it. it. Yeah. All right, well, let's get into some scenes. Uh, did you ever study Latin in school? Because I feel like if you studied Latin, this maybe it's got extra special value. But even though I never studied it, there's mm. two scenes. I mean, between the biggest dickest scene as well as the yeah. Latin lesson of Romans Go Home, I feel like when I, when I visited the UK for nine weeks as a senior, when we would visit, we would like we were studying abroad, but we would go stay at like certain schools and hang out with students, and they all seemed to be studying Latin up and down. I was like, all right, well, in America, we're just dumb because they they mm. let Latin slide a, a, a long time ago. Somehow I avoided Latin. I, I remember um, kids the same age as me doing Latin, but I was never in Latin class. But I definitely recognized the sort of stereotypical teacher that the centurion plays because the, the scene is that uh, Graham Chapman as Brian is forced to write Romans go home on a wall and then in Latin. And then he gets corrected by a centurion. I went to a British boarding school uh, in the like late 80s through probably to the mid 90s. And definitely that stereotype teacher was there that would you know torment you and make you do things and shout at you and things like that so i definitely recognize the stereotype and so it is it is funny to me but um no i didn't i didn't actually study latin no but it's a fantastic scene fantastic scene and i i really like uh my favorite thing in the movie in terms of comedy is michael palin's biggest dickest scene now jewish rapscallion I'm not Jewish, I'm a Roman. A Roman? No, no, Roman. No! Ah! Oh, your father was a Roman. Who was he? He was a centurion in the Jerusalem garrisons. Really? What was his name? Nautius Maximus. <laughs> centurion, do you have anyone of that name in the garrison? Well, no, sir. Well, you sound very sure. Have you checked? Well, no, sir. Um, I think it's a joke, sir. Like, uh, silly Osonis or Biggest Digger, sir. What's, so uh, funny about Biggest Dickers? Well, it's a joke name, sir. I have a very great friend in Rome called Biggest Dickers. <laughs> Silence! What is all this insolence? You will find yourself in gladiator school very quickly with rotten behavior like that. Can I go now, sir? Ah! Wait, your biggest stickers hears of this. Wait! Take him away! Oh, sir, you... No, no, I want him fighting rabid wild animals within a week. Yes, sir. Come on, you. <laughs> I will not have my friends Ridiculed by the common soldiery. Anybody else feel like a little giggle when I mention my friend, Dickus? Dickus. What about you? Do you find it visible? When I say the name, Dickus, Dickus, 
He has a wife, you know. You know what she's called? She's called Incontinentia. Incontinentia buttocks. Stop! What's it all this? I've enough of this rowdy, wobble, sniggling behavior. Silence! Call him from Victorian guards. Makes me shit myself when I watch it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's so funny, and apparently Palin would have to alter his performance repeatedly because he wanted to keep the people in the scene giggling. Because the idea is that he's saying that his friend is called Biggest Dickest, and if you find that funny, I'm going to have you executed or thrown to the lions or whatever. And they're like, and, yeah, you know, like they're yeah. pursing their lips, trying so hard to keep it, and finally they're like, <laughs> and it's like collapsed <laughs> to the ground. But uh, God damn that scene! Like my, my my dad is one of his best friends. His name's Dick Folks, and his entire life we just called him Dickus or Biggest Dickus. And so every yeah, time yeah, I'm yeah. back home in Virginia, I'm reminded of the scene over and over again. And they mm-hmm. just they probably saw it once when it came out, and they've been calling him Biggest Dickus ever Biggest since. Biggest ever since, yeah. But apparently, because obviously he he the, the final laugh is the name of Biggest Dickus's wife, which is Incontinentia buttocks, <laughs> uh, and he he, he kept. He had to keep changing that. So he would have come up with lots and lots of different names. He would have kept alternating his timing to make people laugh. And you've reminded me that they were very good at coming up with bizarre names for their characters. And there's something in, in, in Palin's diary, his Python diary, where he's talking about performing live with Chapman as what they would call the pepper pots, which were the screechy old ladies that would talk to each other. And they came up with all these weird names and they would change it every night. So they'd be like Mrs. Scrotum and Mrs. Orgasm. And they'd come up with these odd names and, and they'd get weirder and weirder as the show went on. And towards the end of the run, I think, Graham Chapman came up with um, Madame Emissions Nocturnelle, which I thought is a very, very funny. Uh, so, yeah, that was something that they were really good at. But that, that scene, I think, is the high point of Michael Palin's career as a, as a comic writer and as a comic actor. Oh yeah. He's just, he's got everyone in the scene in the palm of his hand and he's got all these long pregnant pauses and Mm -hmm. he's really like, he just, his delivery is sublime and it it is a very special scene in the history of comedy. But one thing I like that these guys did in this and it's so rarely done in comedy. I don't know why, but there's so much, gruesome carnage like whether you're talking about like showing like like filthy muddy towns and like holy grail yeah, yeah, yeah. or like the little coliseum that they have in this when they say like children's matinee and you see that mm. the ground is strewn with body parts mm. taking delight in bodily dismemberment some people, oh well you're, you know people being eaten by animals and chopping your bits like that's not funny well yes it is you just gotta find mm. you have to just you have to find the funny in it and they find that funny Every single time, and I love. It, but I keep going back to the scene where they're talking about um, the various uh, political groups up in the stand. But I mm. like how in the beginning of the scene, they are interrupting each other, correcting language so so frequently that at one point someone says, "All right, wait, what was I saying?" He's like, "I think you were finished," but he hasn't said yeah. anything. All they've done is like corrected each other's language sure, for like sure, ten straight sure. minutes, and mm. to the point where they haven't even had a chance to say anything yet. And I feel like you see that every day, where people are constantly correcting each other and publicly mm. shaming each other so mm. frequently that you can't actually even have a conversation. No, I mean, one of the things I've heard the Python say repeatedly is that as a comedy group, they needed things to work against. So they picked, for example, medieval uh, sort of Arthurian times and they picked biblical times because it was a very 
strict structure within which they could work. And now they don't think they could do their comedy because everything's so confusing and diffuse. There isn't any there isn't any sort of definitive echelons of society or pillars that hold society together. I would the only way I would push back on that, I would say that the giant tech companies of today, Facebook, Twitter, etc., have a similar power and structure and they mm. have a worldview and if you veer outside of that worldview there will be consequences mm. i think that the opportunity is still there it's just not mm. the same power structures as mm. in the past whether that used to be the church or the prime mm. minister or whatever the case sure. may be there's always going to be um a, a force that is potentially running the risk of or flirting with authoritarian authoritarian tendencies it's mm. just going to change its shape and change its face, and mm. I feel like if they would, if they did a movie today about social media, they'd find the comedy. Uh, yeah, I think you're right about that. I think you're right about that. Um, your, your earlier point about the sort of gr- grimness of the setting, I think Gilliam's feeling, and I think Terry Jones felt this way as well, is that the the absurdity becomes funnier if you create a real world. So you end up with this sort of bringing out your dead scene at the beginning yeah. of Grail. And Gilliam's always in all of those, like his, like in this, he's a dungeon keeper with this horrible, horrible scar yeah, down the yeah, middle yeah. of his scalp. And he's just having so much fun. Like to be alive at this time was not pleasant. It was a grim, horrible, ruthless, disgusting experience. Yes, right. They, they I mean, the, the, the influence they often bring up is Pasolini and his Canterbury Tales. So they wanted to create something that was quite realistic. Um, one thing we haven't mentioned is on Life of Brian, Gilliam isn't the co-director. He Really, he felt that the Pythons were just too hard to direct. He directed real actors with Jabberwocky, and he just didn't want to direct the Pythons anymore. And the Pythons felt that Terry Jones's style was much more um, in keeping with what they wanted to do because he would shoot the comedy. So Gilliam ended up as the set designer, really. He was the production designer, or the art director, I think was his official title. Um, So the film looks absolutely great. The problem is that he constructed these extraordinarily elaborate sets, and he'd have things like... um, the, the, the sets would be constructed to convey the idea that Roman and Jewish culture were clashing against each other. Uh, and then Terry Jones wouldn't shoot it. He would just shoot the scene. And yep. when you hear the sort of like the commentary tracks of Terry Gilliam rewatching Life of Brian, you can hear his annoyance. It's like I spent like a month building things. that set and you, you moved in for a close up. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. His, his constant criticism is it's just like watching television. He, he says that Terry Jones shot it like television. And whenever there's a grand shot, it's usually because Terry Jones was somewhere else or that he was actually acting and Gilliam took over. Now, whether that's really true or not, I don't know. Well, I think they have, um, they have completely different skill sets. Yeah. And if you watch some of Terry Gilliam's lesser movies from his career mm-hmm. as a director, perhaps mm-hmm. he would have benefited from the influence of Terry Jones on the set mm-hmm. to help him remember, you know, mm-hmm. the performances and the comedy and the, that, that's, that's the life of your film. No matter how great looking mm-hmm. your movie is, no matter how, yeah, imagine, yeah, yeah. how imaginative you are, you still mm-hmm. need some heart. You still need that beating heart mm-hmm. at the core of it. So mm-hmm. I feel like uh, they complement each other beautifully in terms of what they brought to the table. No, exactly. I mean, the thing that Cleese would say is that, and, and obviously it's, it's, it's clearly true is that film is a medium that incorporates so many different facets. And the main one of those actually is writing because without the writing, you don't have a story. Um, so, you know, he leaned very heavily towards Terry Jones because he wanted to tell a tight 90 minute story. Whereas Terry Gilliam, uh, is going to be, he's going to end up with a much, he's going to be shooting on a much, much bigger canvas. And 
Although for something like Baron Munchausen, that's fabulous. But if you then have the writing of Python and then you place that within a film like that, you're really going to just lose the comedy completely. It's just a totally different sensibility. It's why Brazil benefited so much from having uh, Tom Stoppard come in and do a pass on the script because Tom Stoppard, mm. he was going to emphasize the wit and the satire and the comedy. And I feel mm. like Brazil could have easily ventured into Munchausen territory mm. and become such a otherworldly experience that perhaps mm. the comedy might have been neglected. And so, yeah, Gilliam's got his thing that he does really, really well, but I think he needs mm. really funny collaborators. But I love how he does insert some great jokes within the production design. Like one of my favorite bits mm. by far is this row of like mad prophets that are all kind of yeah, like yeah, yeah. scheming and, and it's not scheming, screaming and spitting. And like you get mm. that like Jesus and Brian, all these characters, like there's a, there was a society that was hungry for messiahs and a society that was hungry to follow anybody. And you have all these also-rans and people that didn't quite make the grade, but you see this mad prophet with hands and paled on sticks behind him. It's just so disgusting. But for me, and then of course you have one prophet in that row who's very boring, and he's just he's not he's not like a, a mad prophet at all. He's 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 very kind of like vanilla in a lot of ways. So just mm. every step of the way, this movie just makes me scream. That's right, and that reflects the, all the research they did because uh, Palin w w said that he found out that there was this sort of messiah fever in Judea Absolutely. at the time. It's like when, so, like, all of a sudden, like British rock arrived in America in the '60s, and suddenly there was like 150 of them all competing mm -hmm. to be the big British rock invasion band. But it's interesting. I mean, in terms of sort of Gilliam's influence, I think going back to Grail, he wanted everything to be really nasty and grimy and it and in the one of the problems with the early cuts was it was too nasty and grimy and palin said it was the first sort of uh, edit of it it was 20 percent too sort of grimy and 20 percent uh less in terms of the jokes and i think if you want to look at what grail could have looked like if gilliam was just completely left unchecked you look at jabberwocky which has got people with filthy teeth and it's always dark there's hardly any light there's dust everywhere so I think you're right. I mean, the Terry Jones, Terry Gilliam combination worked, although they were very at odds with each other, worked perfectly in Grail. And then having him as the production designer. And to, I think to a certain extent, he storyboarded it as well. And then having Terry Jones really focusing on the comedy was a, a perfect combination. Because when one watches that film, you, you don't get a sense that the visuals are under under par. It really is a very, very well made film from start to finish. I mean, the opening with the stars coming out and... and um, you know, seeing the three wise men, uh, you know, coming across the horizon with the light shining on them is beautiful stuff. Yeah, it's it's stunning. But I guess if when it comes to visuals, I think obviously Holy Grail is the superior. But I think the comedy in this has a lot more like tooth and nail to it. Like there's a great yeah, yeah. bit about do-gooders toward the end where everybody's being like they're dragging their crosses to be crucified and mm. terry jones comes out like oh brother like let me help you and he offers to carry the cross for a little bit mm. and the guy just runs off and mm. suddenly the do-gooder is stuck with the cross and he ends up getting crucified and he wasn't, he wasn't even mm. supposed to be there and mm. I, it is funny when you see this kind of do-gooder impulse backfiring in somebody's face and it, it's mm. really ruthless stuff and i feel like people who are very earnest and very sincere sometimes will probably push back on that because it kind of cuts to the core of what they've decided to do with their lives where they, they feel these genuine do-gooder impulses and Monty Python's like, all right, well, that's fine, but you very well might end up getting uh, crucified in the person's place that you're trying to protect. Yeah, no, it's, 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 um, it's, it's a bristling stuff. They, they really were trying, I think, to bring modern Britain 
and and real behavior, not just British behavior, real behavior into this biblical time. Because they talk about watching all of these epics in preparation. They watched Quo Vadis, they watched Ben-Hur, they watched The Greatest Story Ever Told, they watched The Robe. And they would yeah, I mean, say the that 50s people would... was littered with these giant littered. biblical epics. Yes, and, and they noticed that people would speak in these very slow, important ways. And actually, you immediately get, get comedy out of just having the people talk kind of normally like stock characters or people that you might encounter. So yes, the, the do-gooder who ends up getting crucified in place of somebody else or the the liberal centurion who is handing out the crucifix is saying, you know, take one crucifix, go to the left, um, <laughs> whose, whose name in the script was Nisus Wettus. Uh, <laughs> although that's never actually mentioned in the film. Yeah, but, name, but, but it's Wettus. just like there's, there, there are layers. You can like peeling back an onion. There's always more comedy to discover. A little nuggets that there is, to, yeah. to chew and, on. And Judith is name, Judith's name, uh, uh, Graham Chapman's character's girlfriend, her, her name in the script was uh, Judith Iscariot. Oh, nice. God, she, uh, nice. And yeah. you get a rare bit of just full frontal, like biblical yes. era Bush. I was like, what? I, mean, I, was, I, mean, I mean, as a teen, I remember that caught me off guard. I was like, whoa, all right. I'm not used yeah. to being like aroused by a uh, Monty Python movie. No. But uh, God, because usually when right. you think of women, you think of uh, Terry Jones and like, he's not the Messiah. He's a very naughty boy. Now yes, piss off. Yes, like yes. that's, that, yeah. that is a Monty Python woman in, in my mind. And the look that the Virgin Mandy, which is that character's name, gives to the bush is extraordinary. That slow look down with the, the eyes popping out. And of course, Graham Chapman went full frontal. Absolutely. And apparently there, there was an elastic band was required to uh, make him look Jewish, if you know yeah, what I mean. Yeah, he, uh, he, due to the decisions made by his parents when he was a, a baby boy, <laughs> to, uh, the appear, to appear Jewish, he needed a little uh, prosthetic for the scene. But uh, yeah, mm-hmm. once again, they, they, it, this is an equal opportunity movie when it comes to full frontal nudity. So whatever, t- pick your yeah. poison, whatever you're into. Yeah, there's a lovely story, actually, about the, the woman who played uh, Judith. Um, she... So when the movie was being banned in the British Isles, it was banned in some cities in Wales. It was banned in Aberystwyth. And uh, 30 years later, she became the mayor of Aberystwyth and unbanned it. Nice. That was her first act at pretty I much. I like it. Revenge, baby. Yeah. I know. It's great. And then she got uh, she got Terry Jones and Michael Palin to come back and they did a sort of special charity charity screening in Wales. So she's a very cool woman. She's she's sort of stuck to her guns when when it came to the life of Brian. Yeah, she she was totally game. And yeah, there, mm. this movie I think yeah probably has more good female performances than most. Like in that because we got the scene early on when they can't hear in the back, and you've got a couple of girls in the scene. But then of mm. course you've got that fucking amazing scene where they're going to kill a guy by stoning him, and all these mm. women. Some of whom are men in disguise, but a lot of women are there when they're not supposed to be. Well, that was men playing women, women pretending, to, pretending be to be men. It's yeah. very, very weird. That was the first thing that they shot, I think, actually, of the movie. And Cleese was really scared that they would screw it up because, you know, you're, you might be a little tight on the on the first day of shooting. And uh, it went like a dream. And he said, you know, we, we did the scene and by lunchtime I was swimming. You know, it was just he literally was swimming in the sea or, or in the hotel pool or whatever. Uh, and and the, whole, the whole shoot was an absolute breeze. Um, and, of course, he had been a teacher. I mean, this is something we haven't really discussed. He, he uh, was brought up in a place called Western Supermare. And once he had f- finished 
his schooling there, he actually briefly went back for two years as a teacher before he went to university. So a lot of the characters he's playing are very sort of headmasterly. Uh, and you've talked about the centurion, but also that character is, you know, very like a teacher sort of telling off. Which is, gives us no, our favorite scene, children. The Meaning of Life, where he's like making fun of his old headmaster oh. about how he kind of speaks in a way that no one could really understand when he's talking about when you need to like use the lower hook or the upper hook and like yes, hang your yes. coat and things like that. And he says, yeah, like his headmaster that. spoke almost in riddles, even though yeah. he thought he was making perfect sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the, that, that sequence from The Meaning of Life, the sort of sex education class, I it's like 80% accurate minus the actual sex from from my childhood or all, all of the behavior of the teachers the inflections the way he he speaks is astonishingly as accurate. you will observe the penis is now more or less fully erect like I mean, it's so good. well it's when he says hardened but he says ha the way he says yeah. more or less fully erect is like any any person past the age of like 20 is going to be able to relate to uh, how he uh, characterizes sure. his anatomy. But uh, speaking of anatomy and sex, et cetera, there's a pretty uh, vicious joke at one point in Life of Brian that absolutely now would, ha- would result in a stoning when uh, Brian's learning that his father was a Roman, Nautius Maximus. And he's like, oh, I you mean you were raped? And she says, well, at, well, first. at first, yes. I was like, oh, my God. Like, yeah. And what's funny is that like people can feign outrage, but I mm-hmm. bet most people who watching that scene – they would laugh, be ashamed of themselves, and then go on Twitter and be like, oh, how dare they say this and make fun of this topic, blah, 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 blah. But once again, laughter is involuntary. And I think that joke, no matter what people might protest, it's still going to make people laugh when they hear it. Well, that's right. And actually, that's, again, like the Dave Chappelle sticks and stones. Watching that, the, the initial reaction from the joke is an intake of air, a gasp, and then, I can't believe he said that, and then hysterical laughter. I don't think people would have had that reaction to Life of Brian then, to that particular scene, but they probably would now. Absolutely. The way things have, have changed. Yeah, I mean, it's like when people watch Eddie Murphy's Delirious, they go fucking into hysterics, not in a mm-hmm. good way, reacting to all of his language. And he's a, I think he made a, the worst possible decision to apologize for his most popular yeah. stand up bit because all that ends up happening is you end up apologizing for the rest of your life because no one on social media has ever said apology accepted. It, just, mm. it doesn't exist. If there's a fight, the fight just goes and goes and goes until people either destroy each other, block each other, move on, whatever. But like, mm-hmm. no one ever like settles an argument or a dispute on social media. Mm. They just escalate. And mm. so uh, I think right or wrong, even if you think you're totally in the wrong, once you start opening the door to having apologizing to past jokes, then you're going to spend the rest of your career doing that again and again and again. Because mm. tastes and cha- I mean, preferences, they, preferences – they change over time. Like a PG used to mean something different. A G used to mean something different. R mm. and PG-13 used to mean something different. And people need to remember that like you can't judge history by the attitudes of the moment because you'll just end up like a snake eating its own tail, like mm. totally unable to digest or wrestle with or even like try to study the events of the, of the past because you'll just be mm. working yourself up into a fit every step of the way. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, the, the Pythons uh, have ne- never apologized for anything they've done. And it, it's quite interesting because at the time they would have been regarded as heroes. And there was an incident, I think, after the movie came out where they published a book of the film and they were asked to edit certain things out and they flatly refused to do it. And the publisher said, OK, we can't cave in to Mary Whitehouse. We will publish your book 
as is. And that makes them heroes. But I think now that wouldn't have happened. And they would probably, you know, at the time, the public would have looked at them as heroes. And now I wonder whether that would be the case. Well, we just live in incredibly polarized, divided times. And you would have a giant culture war online. But Mm. I know a lot of authors, like uh, Brady Sinellis, he's had to kind of hop around between different publishers because like his book American Psycho almost didn't get published he had to swap oh, yeah, yeah, his yeah. most recent book White, White. he had to swap yeah. like, b- b- there are definitely situations now like everybody loves a good excuse to indulge in a little culture war and mm-hmm. in, for me even when people are creating things that I hate or disagree with or whatever I will always err on the side of let people write or say whatever the hell they want. And if I don't like mm-hmm. it, I won't buy it. I won't consume mm. it. But I, I feel like if you really believe in freedom of expression, the real test of it is are you willing to vigorously defend the right of people you despise mm. sharing that same ability? And for me, that, that's, mm. that's real freedom of expression where mm. you let people you hate speak their piece. Yes, no, that's quite right. I mean, t- Terry Jones said um, they never set out to shock they just didn't stop themselves from shocking people. That was never their intention. They 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 never set out to to shock people. But if they came up with an idea that would, was deemed shock, shocking, they wouldn't censor themselves. And I think that's what makes their material so interesting is that there are times... Yeah, they're not provocateurs, actually, but they just no. stumbled into it from time to time. Exactly right. Yeah, there was nothing that was out of bounds. So sometimes they're quite sweet and sentimental, and sometimes they're... You know, they go into sort of grand guignol and it's blood and viciousness. And other times they're in sort of political territory. There was nothing that was out of bounds for them, but they never actually set out to to push the boundaries. Well, it doesn't feel vicious. Sense. Like it's mm. it's funny and it's satire mm. and they're po- they're kind of poking people with a stick, mm. but it doesn't feel malicious. And I think that's no, one of the never. reasons that it's so easy to digest is that mm-hmm. you don't feel like these are hateful people they're delightful people. They're lovable people. And so that's what mm-hmm. allows their comedy to be so welcoming and warm and have so much heart because they're not trying to just savage their enemies. And no. I, I think that's what, it makes, what makes them so intensely lovable to this day. It's why like nobody's got a bad word to say about the Python. They might think their comedy's like overrated or they might not enjoy it or mm. might not be in their cup of tea, but no one's like, Oh my God, I fucking hate John Cleese. Like how can you hate John, <laughs> John Cleese? Yeah. They're, they're a very warm bunch of guys and they had such a diverse, they had such diverse voices that their material is incredibly rich and they were very thoughtful in everything that they did. Uh, and therefore the material I think will, will last out. It's, it's, it isn't going to go away. Yeah. I mean, the material the speaks for itself. You don't it's need to defend it old. because it, it, it defends itself just by virtue. It does. Of, all yeah. you have to do is just be exposed to it. Exactly. And they could have made such a cheap biblical comedy. They could very easily have just done a, a spoof of Christ. Yeah. And actually, you know, they used their intelligence and, and um, you, you know, their, I suppose their, edu- you know, their, their education as well to take the time to go off and research and find a way of exploring certain subjects without without actually blaspheming as such. So the thing that Terry Jones said is that it's a heretical movie because it's poking fun at the church. It's poking fun at people who tell you what to think, and it's poking fun at people who do exactly what they're told. Yeah, it's poking it's fun at the people who, of... as a mass, are screaming to be led and are so desperate that they'll interpret anything they're told or anything they see 
as only reinforcing and like solidifying what they mm-hmm. already believe. Like he's like, you mm-hmm. know, he's like, y'all need to think for yourselves. They're like, yes, we need to think for ourselves. I know, yeah. <laughs> it's just like uh, you're all different. Yes, we're all different. Yeah, I'm not. <laughs> it, once again, it's it's universal comedy that works yeah. for any era, any topic, any culture, mm-hmm. and that's what. Once again, I think you could make a case for this as the best screenplay ever written for any comedy in any era. Like I don't know if it's my favorite comedy, but I can't mm. think of a better written comedy f- from any point in film history. No, it's it's very funny. It's got a variety of different comedy styles. It's intellectually watertight, um, but it, it it never preaches to you. It just tells you to think. And you can take that message away or you can just laugh. Um, so, you know, from that point of view, I think it is... Uh, it, if you were to sort of list the greatest British comedies of all time... It has to be in the top five, and I would probably put it as the top one. Yeah, it's it's in contention. It's in, it's in the mix for the uh, the the goat, the greatest of all time. Well, between Life of Brian and Meaning of Life, they take a couple of years off. They have a little bit of a hiatus. Any major moments that you want to call attention to while they were kind of brainstorming about what to do next? Because it seems like this is when their rock star status really yeah. started to become uh, readily apparent. I mean, you can't avoid Live at the Hollywood Bowl, which is, it, I mean, it is a film. It wasn't meant to be a film. Basically, they, they didn't really know what to do in terms of a collaboration. And it was a nice way of them getting together and doing something. Their business manager was a guy called Dennis O'Brien, who uh, was part of, well, he was George Harrison's uh, manager as well. And uh, together, obviously, they put together handmade films, which we didn't talk about, actually, but that that was how they officially financed Life of Brian. So he came up with lots and lots of plans for how they could make money, and they usually rejected them. But one of the ideas that they liked was doing a big show. So they wanted to perform at the Hollywood Bowl. They'd heard lots of, uh, you know, famous albums that had been recorded at the Hollywood Bowl. And it just seemed like a nice idea. And uh, I mean, they already knew this, really. They'd already experienced it before. But when you watch the film, it becomes very apparent that they are now rock stars. And they would hang out with... Martin Scorsese. I think they shared a hotel with Martin Scorsese. Jagger was there. Um, the the crew, uh, the cast from SNL were there. So they had their kind of their rock star kind of peak of fame moment. Uh, the show is only a film because Dennis O'Brien, according to Eric Idle, was so incompetent that he screwed up all of the financial matters. And so they needed to sell it as a film in order to actually make their money back. And they actually made quite a lot of money out of it in the end. Um, but it's it's fascinating as a kind of Python history lesson because you end up with sketches that they did before Python happened. So there's a sketch um, 
where a very dry lecturer explains slapstick comedy and then they act out the slapstick comedy. And my takeaway from that sketch is that slapstick comedy is really funny uh, if you do it right. So uh, we did a, a Chaplin episode a while ago, and the idea is that you set up an expectation and then you do something slightly different. So in the sketch, for example, you know, they, they put a banana skin on the ground and the I think it's Palin walks past it, walks back, picks it up and then sticks it down someone's shirt and rubs it around on their chest. <laughs> Stuff like that. It's, it's really, really funny. Uh, and that sketch has a long history because apparently there's a guy called Michael Benteen, who was an original member of the Goon Show who influenced Python. He claims to have actually done that sketch himself long, long before. And then some the son of somebody who'd seen it, uh, had heard about it, thought they'd come up with the idea, told Terry, Terry Jones and Michael Palin the idea, and then they'd written the sketch. So Michael Benteen had said that he had done that sketch long, long before in a different version, and the people who wrote it didn't know that. So there's a kind of interesting history of comedy there. Um, they did sketches um, from uh, an amnesty um, charity gig that they did. So the sketch with the Pope asking Michelangelo uh, to paint the Last Supper, but he's painted like kangaroos and there's too many people on 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 the canvas that was a, a not python sketch um there's the the video material had come from their two german episodes uh, because they did two german episodes one they actually did in german and they learned phonetic german to do it and the other one was was subtitled so the film inserts are actually from their their german show so actually that show isn't a retread it has lots of really interesting material in it it's almost like a b-sides album that you're watching it's, but also it's, you get to see one of the only performances <laughs> of sit on my face which is obviously like yes. a song they'd done for an album years before mm. but we actually get to see them doing it as like a barbershop quartet and of course yeah, yeah. like the great punchline even though they don't like punchlines is that as they walk away they all have bare asses <laughs> and like yes. gilliam's yeah, yeah. like kind of emphasizing it and really pushing his butt out but mm. it's like a one-minute song. But if you like that song, that's like that's the one time you get to see it performed. Absolutely. I mean, they've done it a few times since, but it's just it's just lovely seeing them do all that material as well as, as some of their greatest hits, like the argument sketch and the silly walk sketch. And I have to say, seeing John Cleese doing the silly walks is it's just a, a balletic masterpiece of comedy. I mean, it's. The thing about Cleese is that he didn't like improvisation, so he would work out how something was most funny and do it exactly the same way every time and, and because he knew what the comedic result would be. But it wasn't a sketch he particularly liked because he knew that the sketch was only funny because of the way he performed it. There was nothing actually inherently funny in the writing. So while he was doing the silly walks, and the audience are laughing. He would be saying to Michael Palin, you can't be very proud of this sketch. It's really not very funny at all, is it? You you shouldn't be proud of this. Uh, while and he also he got tired throughout his life that every time people see him in public to this day, mm. they're asking him to do the silly walks. Like at a certain point, you're like, all right. It's like with like Charlie Murphy. He got tired of hearing like mm -hmm. about Rick James after that mm. Dave Chappelle sketch basically took over the took over the universe for like a year or two but he'd be out in public mm. with like his little like his kids and be like ah like charlie murphy and he's like all right i, I get it like everybody loves the sketch but please yes. let it let it go no cleese definitely got fed up with it uh, when i saw them live of course he was about 75 so he wasn't going to do be doing any city walks he'd had a sort of knee replacement and a hip replacement so they got lots of dancers to come on but it was very interesting you know seeing 
the Hollywood Bowl show and then seeing seeing them live in 2014 where they really did just do the greatest hits. They didn't try and generate any new material. Um, but at the same time, it was lovely to see. And that 2014 show was very Python-esque in the sense that it did all merge together in this kind of stream of consciousness style. But I think, you know, if people don't want to do the deep dive on the TV show, there are worse things that you could do than watch Hollywood Bowl. And then you do see them, I think, as they're, at their peak as sketch performers and then maybe give a now for something completely different a look to get a flavor of their early material. You know, if you really didn't want to watch or just 40, watch the Netflix documentary because they include yeah. tons of highlights and bits, but you're yeah, not yeah, having yeah. to watch the seasons in their entirety. Yeah, exactly. But I think Hollywood Bowl was them at their peak as performers. I think for them, it actually almost felt like a farewell. They weren't really sure that they were going to do anything again. Uh, and it was a huge success. It was one of the, the first uh, sort of live comedy films that were that was done in that way. It was that the the album, the comedy album film was a relatively new form. So I think that's worth mentioning. Um, and then, of course, you sort of segue into the meaning of life because they didn't none of them had much on their plate at that point. Uh, I think Gilliam may, maybe was doing time but other than that, they were all pretty free. Uh, and so they decided to make The Meaning of Life. And the reason they made it was because, again, Dennis O'Brien had said to them, if you make a film off the back of Life of Brian, you'll never have to work again. You'll never have to work again. And yeah. John Cleese has, has always wanted to make enough money that he never has to work again. And Palin likes to make fun of him for it in that same interview on TV. I mean, it's like, oh, yeah, it's like, he's like, Cleese has always had like his horrible, like aversion to hard work. Yeah, he, he has this kind of minimalist attitude, which is you do something, you get it right, you move on. So that's why he left after three seasons of Python. That's why there are only two seasons of uh, Faulty Towers. Uh, and then he made um, Fish Called Wanda as a reaction, really, to Meaning of Life because he didn't agree with all of the material that was included. He thought there were some things that should have gone in that didn't. He didn't like being outvoted, so he made his own movie a little bit down the line. And the, the movie that doesn't really get talked about very much is he made a film called Fierce Creatures in the late 90s, yeah, yeah, which sequel. wasn't very well received, and it flopped. And he said, you know, when I, when I was a younger man, yes, I would write and star in a movie, and it would take up years of my life, and I wouldn't mind that it stayed in the cinema for a week but as a man of sort of approaching 60 or however old he was at the time that's not really something i want to repeat so he did actually continue to generate his own material to fairly late in his life he just wasn't prolific uh you know he was a very very exacting mind i don't think he wanted to do something unless he felt he was it was something that he hadn't done before i think that's really the reason why he didn't generate that much material and he says he doesn't like the sausage machine he didn't like the idea of you know you've got x amount of time you have to generate x amount of material yeah, we need 24 episodes go oh thank yeah. you so much now it's 24 go i mean like, it's one i mean yeah. why dave Chappelle left his show i mean like he didn't mm. like his vision being compromised and also doing a show you run out of ideas really goddamn fast when i think the mm. movies are actually a more of a natural fit for them because it allowed them to take a break from each other and recharge their batteries mm. and cook up new ideas and while Meaning of Life I don't think is as strong as Brian or Grail, that yeah. said, there are some scenes in Meaning of Life that my world would be a dimmer, poorer place without these scenes. So let's, let's dig into Meaning of Life because I think this flick is well worth hunting down and has some mm. some of their best material yeah. they ever did from every sperm is sacred to 
lines about why what what it means to be a Protestant or mm. the sex ed class followed by the rugby match, which we've already mentioned, and of course Eric yeah. Idle's extraordinary musical numbers. Meaning of Life ki absolutely kicks ass. Look at them bloody Catholics filling the bloody world up with bloody people they can't afford to bloody feed. What are we, dear? Protestant and fiercely proud of it. Why do they have so many children? Because every time they have sexual intercourse, they have to have a baby. But it's the same with us, Harry. What do you mean? Well, I mean, we've got two children and we've had sexual intercourse twice. That's not the point. We could have it any time we wanted. Really? Oh, yes. And what's more, because we don't believe in all that papist claptrap, we can take precautions. What do you mean? Lock the door? No, no. I mean, because we are members of the Protestant Reformed Church, which successfully challenged the autocratic power of the papacy in the mid-16th century, we can wear little rubber devices to prevent issue. What do you mean? I could, if I wanted, have sexual intercourse with you. Oh, yes, Harry. And by wearing a rubber sheath over my old fella, I could ensure that when I came off, you would not be impregnated. Oh! That's what being a Protestant's all about. That's why it's the church for me. That's why it's the church for anyone who respects the individual and the individual's right to decide for him or herself. When Martin Luther nailed his protest up to the church door in 1517, he may not have realised the full significance of what he was doing. But 400 years later, thanks to him, my dear, I can wear whatever I want on my John Thomas. And Protestantism doesn't stop at the simple condom. Oh, no. I can wear French ticklers if I want. You what? French ticklers, black mambos, crocodile ribs, sheaths that are designed not only to protect, but also to enhance the stimulation of sexual congress. Have you got one? Have I got one? Uh, well, no. But I can go down the road any time I want and walk into Harry's and hold my head up high and say in a loud, steady voice, Harry, I want you to sell me a condom. In fact, today I think I'll have a French tickler, for I am a Protestant. Well, why don't you? But they, they cannot. Because their church never made the great leap out of the Middle Ages and the domination of alien Episcopal supremacy. It has some of their very, very best material. Um, I'm rather fond of the birth sketch. Oh, the God, yeah. Hell yeah. That's really, really funny. I mean, the, the, they say the reason why that didn't work so well when it was originally screened, and we've sort of alluded to this, is that Terry Gilliam didn't want to do animation anymore but he had an idea which really probably should have been an animation which was called the crimson permanent assurance which is about a group of old men in a insurance company who rather like pirates take over the building and then you know they turn the blades of the fa fans into a yeah it a feels almost like outtakes from like time bandits or something like yeah, that yeah, but yeah. i think if it had been five minutes instead of 15 and yes. animated instead of live action the impact for me, it, it's so long that mm. it really the movie struggles to kind of get started. It struggles to get its momentum going. I think mm. maybe they could have put it in like in the middle. I don't know, but I, that was a, the original plan, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's just too goddamn long, though. In, yeah. in my opinion, I think that the movie would have been stronger if they'd actually just ditched it completely. Yeah? I mean, which is a sad thing to say because I liked I, I it like more it. when I was yeah. younger because it was so mm. kind of like fanciful. But I like mm. it less now. I don't, there are not a lot of jokes in it. It's, it's no. very impressive in terms of production design, mm. but it shows Terry Gilliam at his most kind of self-indulgent. He does I love Terry Gilliam, but he's got a self-indulgent yeah. side. No, I love Terry Gilliam. He was my favorite director when I was much younger. Um, but 
it's not that I don't like it. I, I think it's pretty fantastic. It is too long. Um, it's more for the health of the film as a whole. It sh just shouldn't be there because it sets up one rhythm and then it ends and then you end up with something completely different to that. Yeah, but and, the different stages of life and it's it, it yeah. doesn't it's not tied into like the, the themes of the film very well whereas mm -hmm. the rest is about fighting each other and education mm -hmm. and sex and reproduction etc. Yeah. And yeah, yeah the, the the birth scene is great like like um Michael Palin's character comes in and is like, "Oh, well, what do you have going on here?" And he's like, "It's a birth." He's like, "Ah, and what is that?" Like what is it's, that? it's yes. just it's just silly. And then the little mm -hmm. lines once again we talk about how like their uh, sexual politics are so ahead of their time. I love how they, the mother says, is it a boy or a girl? And they say, oh, and now I think it's a little early to start imposing roles on it, don't you? Yes. Like that is something from like the 2015, 2016 yes. playbook. And here they are mm. talking about it in 1983. The thing is, is I, I don't think when they wrote that, they were talking about gender politics. They were just making a, a silly joke. And that silly joke has become reality. Yeah. You know, that would never have occurred to them at the time. It was like the movie really Network. Everybody thought that. it was like this over-the-top experience when it came out. And now it turned out to be eerily prophetic where reality has mm -hmm. become a reflection of this twisted nightmare depicted in Network, you know, back in the 70s. Yes, yes. But, Ter but Terry Jones, he didn't write that sketch, but he said when he saw it, it was so eerily accurate uh, in comparison to his own wife giving birth. Uh, and actually, you know, sort of talking about personal things, my wife had a C-section and uh, it is kind of a bit like that, to be, to be honest with you. Uh, and I... Um, right, they gas them up, get the baby out, down the hall you go, you go over here, blah, 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 blah. It's an assembly line. Get, get, keep, keep the babies coming. Yeah, and, and the idea of, you know, turning on all the most expensive machines when yep. the, you know, when the, the uh, sort of manager of the hospital comes around is, I think, pretty accurate, actually. That, that's one of my favorite things. But apparently when they showed it at Cannes, uh, you know, the Cannes so-called film snobs loved that opening movie, The Crimson Permanent Assurance. And they were completely lost when they got to the birth sketch, which opens the film proper because it's something completely different. You well, go from tonally, epic... the movie suddenly has to start yeah. over and like reinvent yeah. itself entirely. Yeah. And apparently they were, they were then won over by Every Sperm is Sacred, um, which, which is... Which that as well as yeah. Terry Gilliam's short, use up most of the of the budget. Must but, have done. But that song is amazing. And it's like, it becomes this incredible, once again, going back to musical, music and comedy being combined, it's an mm. extraordinary scene with like, you know, girls dancing like, you know, while they're hanging their clothes. And it becomes like mm. a proper like Gene Kelly or Fred Astaire type musical. But they're mm. saying all these lines like, if the sperm is wasted, God gets quite irate. <laughs> quite irate, yeah. I mean... And also, what comes before and after, like with like the kids suggesting, "Oh, couldn't you cut your balls off?" Like you're like, you know, like, "Oh, yes, God yes. sees all," and he's like, "Oh, well, couldn't it happen in an accident?" He's like, "I know you're trying to help, but it's medical yeah. experiments for the lot of yeah. you." Medical experiments <laughs> it's for the so lot of you. fucking good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's you know, talking about Pontius Pilate being Palin's greatest moment. I think that's Terry Jones's greatest moment as a writer and as a director. It's what he was deliberately aping was Lionel Bart. And Oliver, that's actually what you're watching. Um, <clears throat> but rather like with Grail and with uh, Life of Brian, they're not actually lampooning the style. You know, like the Life of Brian isn't really lampooning biblical epics. It's trying to be a biblical epic and then framing its comedy within that. Uh, with Every Sperm is Sacred, they're trying to create a Lionel Bart Oliver style musical. They're not making fun of that. It is that. The comedy then comes from... Uh, 
comments about the Catholic Church. Yeah, and seeing uh, an entire city living in poverty because of a belief system that they're uh, that they've adopted. Like I love this is like third world, like third York world, yeah. or, 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 or whatever. <laughs> yeah, if you want people to remain mired in poverty, encouraging them to have too many children is one of the best ways to make sure that people never are able to emerge beyond the poverty line. And it's ruthless and it's kinda it's kind of like a blunt truth. But it is abundantly apparent as they're walking down the street afterwards, singing the song in these kind of sad, forlorn voices. Mm. And you hear like uh, Graham Chapman's like, oh, look at them bloody Catholics filling the world up with bloody people. They can't afford to bloody feed. I mean, it mm. just, they, they are st- stating it so explicitly and mm. so fiercely. And that, that scene between him and Eric Idle makes me... Once again, it just it reminds me of like listening to like my parents or grandparents. Mm. In the, when but it's go- also it's the idea again. It's the same same as the life of Brian. It's the idea of one doctrine leading to two different, completely different things. So you end up with you know my, Michael Palin selling his kids for medical experiments because he can't look after them anymore. There's too many of them, and then you end up with uh, you know Graham Chapman who's allowed to you know, I can hold my head up high and ask for a French tickler like, or whatever. That's what a person's all about. That's why it's the church for me. I mean, it's almost like a, like a, like an infomercial selling you on, on being a, right, a right, Protestant. Right. He really sells it so well. And he's like, he um, oh, I mean, like, oh yeah, I'm talking about like the French ticklers and all, and then John Thomas and well, his, his old chap and all that stuff. That's one of the funniest things I think the, the Pythons ever did together. I, I agree. And I mean, I think Terry Jones really had it in his, he had the whole thing in his head. He he had it all mapped out so that he'd sort of drawn the image that he wanted and had, you know, the, the lyric line all mapped out. Uh, they brought in the choreographer Arlene Phillips. Um, and she said that it was just a really joyful experience. They went to all the dance schools in the north of England and gave everybody a chance. And all the kids in it were just were on their summer holidays and they just had an absolute whale of a time. And she compared it to working on Annie and she said on that film, you know, you'd have these sort of seven year old children giving you their CV and then demanding why they hadn't gotten the job. Whereas with this, everyone just seemed to be having a tremendous time. And apparently it was all shot in three takes. It was done really quickly because probably very much like Life of Brian, you know, what he may have lacked in a visual sensibility, he Terry Jones definitely gained in preparedness and organization. He, He was really on it. Um, so it was very, you know, they had all these extras and sets and dances and everything, and it was all over and done with very, very quickly. Well, he absolutely knocked it out of the park. I mean, it's, yes. it's, it's one of the high watermarks of their entire career. And Agreed. once again, going back to this idea of having like invisible transitions from one sketch into another mm. to go from the every sperm is sacred into this commercial for Protestantin- Pro- Protestantinism, yeah. however you the hell you pronounce the word. Yes. That is one of those seamless, beautiful transli- tra- transitions that is a uh, vintage Python. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I can watch, I can watch those two scenes back to back anytime and have the time mm. of my life. But as I said before, mm. my, for me, the high watermark is the sex ed class. Where you got mm. half the boys in the class or it's the Pythons in their forties dressed up yeah. in like schoolboy uniforms, which is just inherently funny when you see like Eric Idle kind of daydreaming and looking off and, you know, uh, Terry Jones watching the football out the window and there's acting like little kids again. Mm. But it just, uh, John Cleese, when he's <laughs> talking to the boys about ways to get vaginal juices flowing and they're like, know. you know, rubbing yes. the clitoris. Or it's like, What's wrong with a kiss? And like talking What's about wrong with a kiss boy. Yeah, stampeding toward the clitoris and all these expressions. Mm-hmm. This is maybe my favorite scene that they ever uh, that they ever did. I, or, or maybe I'm only saying that because 
I went decades without watching it and then rediscovered mm-hmm. it recently. Mm-hmm. But I had to watch it a couple of times. It just it yeah. really got to me. It's one of the best things they ever did. It's, it's certainly one of the best things that people aren't that familiar with, I would say. Uh, one of the things about Python is they, they really, if you want to know something about England, watch Python because every stereotype is lampooned. And uh, the I, way he I, and his wife behave and act toward each yes. other, and she starts immediately asking, Oh, well, I told the so and so we'd have dinner with him tonight. He's like, Oh, yes, darling, that'll help me get out of my faculty meeting. And how they're just like, they're talking about the most bland, forgettable mm. nonsense. And then, like, they just you know, skipping the foreplay and diving right into the sex. And it's like, oh, that's mm-hmm. better. Oh, thank you, darling. But, like, the way they behave, you feel yeah. like they're capturing a, an aspect of British life mm-hmm. <laughs> perfectly. And I think the idea is that everything in a classroom can become boring. I think even if you're having sex on a bed in front of the kids, if it's in a classroom, it automatically becomes boring, uh, which is probably fa- fairly accurate. But I remember having, as I said, n- not not as graphic as that, but I remember having lessons like that from stuffy old masters at a boarding school. And it wasn't a million miles minus the climactic moment. It wasn't a million miles from that. And it would have been only about five, six, seven years after that. So the the, the experience that they're putting on screen is basically my childhood. And even the, <laughs> the rugger match that happens after that, the rugby match where the masters... The ritualistic know, hazing. Rush, yeah. the, crush the kids. That stuff is not a million miles from from the truth. Yeah, I went to boarding school at 15, but it was rural mm. Virginia, so very different uh, setting, but there were there was definitely a ritualized hazing that was almost yeah. like a part of the rule book when I first arrived that kind of got stamped out while I was there. But all these strange things, like all these rituals, like having to like haze the first year classmen in order to make these torches for bonfires and how they'd kind of like whip you and beat you with the materials to hand them out to you and you would get more torches depending upon how much the seniors hated you. And like mm. this, uh, this uh, ritual of snow bunnying, anytime it snowed, you were just allowed to have the shit kicked out of you by the mm. upperclassmen where they could just roll you around in the snow, stuff show, snow up your clothes and kind of punch you and kick you a bit. And then right. off the class you go. And mm. not only did the boys not get in trouble or get demerits, it was kind of encouraged and applauded Courage. by the faculty. And so when I see that rugby match and all the boys just getting dogpiled by the, by the faculty, yeah. it definitely brings back some memories. Yeah, so there's a teacher that I, I uh, was at school with who would pick you up by the shirt of your rugby collar, lift you off the ground and throw you in the nearest bush. I mean, that was... Uh, it's all in good so fun, yeah. It, all in good fun. It was quite painful, actually. But um, yeah, that, that certainly rings true. But I mean, it was a, a film that had a, a terrible sort of gestation period. It took them about two years to write the movie. As I say, they really did it for the money. They should have had a rest period before they actually dove in and tried to write it. And in the same way that they wrote grail and the life of brian they started off by writing sketch material but it just never coalesced into a coherent story and they very very nearly gave up on it and the the story is that they went to uh, jamaica this time not barbados they went to jamaica to try and sort of repeat the experience that they had with the life of brian and they realized when they got there that actually they had a lot of material and none of it added up collectively it just didn't add up to a movie and apparently terry jones realized that they had about 70 minutes of good material and they just needed 20 minutes more and if they could just come up with a way of linking it together and then he said i I think it must be somebody's life and eric idol i think probably said you know it could be the meaning of life uh and or it could be the seven ages of man and then and then they had the basic idea and then they wrote the the birth and the death sketch at the end to try and give it some some structure 
some sort of structure. But I mean, Eric Idle in his autobiography says that he really thinks they should have had one more rewrite and make it about one character. And these are all the aspects of their life. But yeah, it would have brought it all together. But I kind of like the fact that it is so narratively incoherent and that we've already had two really strong mm. narratively coherent movies prior that we mm. do have this movie that feels a little bit more random and haphazard. And because of, because of its unevenness, it just makes it feel a little bit more like its own thing. And so, mm. I mean, like the, the, one of the most ridiculous parts is when Eric Idle sings this really long, silly song about like the way the universe functions. And it's like a terrible song, but something about it just makes me howl. And like the other bit where like uh, Terry Gilliam has these two people pop by to collect the organs that he's agreed to donate. Once again, going back to like do-gooders eventually getting crucified for their own instincts. And he's like, oh, well, I'm using it. And they like pin him down and it's like rip his organs out. Like Mm. it has some great scenes. Like it has scenes where they're really, you argue as like individual scenes are better than in the movies that came before. Yeah. So so I don't mind the fact that this movie is, feels incomplete and kind of inconsistent mm. and all over the place because when, when it works, it works and it's, you know, yeah. it's, their, it's their swan song. There isn't actually much in it. I think that doesn't work. I don't really like the sketch with uh, Michael Palin and Eric Idle as two ends of the tiger in the jungle. Cause um, as Eric Idle's had his leg bitten off and then they go in search of the tiger that yeah, did it. The bit, it's, it's funnier it's, earlier when the doctor comes by the tent. And yes, he, yes. And, and like, oh, like that. Like, basically, it's like that classic British officer fatalism where they're understating mm. everything, no matter how vicious and horrible it is. Like, I think it starts strong, and then the air just escapes the balloon. Mm. And there's a sketch, I think, about people at a restaurant buying a conversation instead of a meal. That there's no joke. There's no jokes in that, and it really it's one of those things and. The, the series is a bit like this. There are some times where they've come up with a good idea, but they've not really provided the comedy. Uh, it happens every now and again, um, but there's not much of it. That's probably 20 minutes of a 90 minute film. And the rest of it, I think is actually very, yeah, very Terry good. Jones with all the projectile vomit and that sort of thing. It's one of the, like, it's basically like they're kind of a, in a weird way of making fun of Orson Welles toward the end of his life. But oh, right, yeah. <laughs> when he's just like, just, I mean, it's so foul and so disgusting and everybody's just like, you know, trying to be so helpful and it's just a weird mix of like polite manners mixed with the most disgusting physical comedy you've ever seen. Mm. And I like the silly bit at the end where the guy who's managed to choose his own manner of his own execution. Yes. yes. And he just wants to be chased to off a cliff by a bunch of topless mm. chicks in helmets. And mm. it's completely absurd. And it feels almost like something out of like a Russ Meyer movie, but mm. I, I enjoy the scene. So yeah, like you said, I think this movie is like, 70 good minutes and perhaps 20 weaker minutes but mm. it's still a goddamn funny movie it is very funny it does definitely does have some of their best stuff the, the people the, the thing that people remember is the mr creosote ex, the fat man exploding at the end of the movie that's the thing that sticks in people's minds but they did try and come up with a coherent idea early on so that at one point it was going to be world war three i think that would have been a really good idea uh at another point it's funny the different things that people remember terry gilliam seems to think that at one point it was going to be a trial and that the sketches were going to be part of a trial and that and that the, the punishment at the end of it so they were going to put the sketches up as evidence that they hadn't made the film just as a tax dodge uh and then they were going to be con- convicted and sentenced to death and they were all going to be able to choose the manner of their own death. And that's how that sketch happened. The, the idea that Graham Chapman is running away from a bunch of topless women and they chase him off a cliff. Um, so it's, the, the, Which is ironic because at this point they knew he, he'd come out of the closet. And yes. <laughs> that they would choose him to be the guy. 
You know, I love how like John Cleese in the documentary is talking about how like he's like, I would have been probably less surprised if he had told me he was secretly Chinese. Like he just like they somehow just were totally oblivious to the fact that Graham yeah. Chapman was uh, living with a man and like you know would frequently have different boyfriends in the morning when they swung by to pick him up and he's hung over and trying to drag himself out of bed. But mm. when he eventually obviously uh, came out, I guess like maybe like in the late seventies. And so, but this is nineteen eighty three, so they were well mm. aware of his uh, his inclinations. Well, he had a party, I think, and he invited all of his friends and then just uh, including a fiance, I think, and then just it, it announced that he was gay. <laughs> so, and uh, I mean, that's fine. You know, more power to him. And, and I know a lot of the Pythons think one of the reasons why he was the way he was in terms of his alcoholism and, and the fact that he he really did live his life at sort of 200 miles an hour was that he had made this big uh, announcement he'd made this big decision and that he felt like he didn't need to make any more big decisions and so he just kind of cruised through life and decided just to live the life of a movie star and enjoy every second uh and and that's i mean he he was very very promiscuous um i mean uh, terry gilliam tells the story of seeing him backstage being given a hand job by a stranger while they were actually in the middle of a show oh wow uh, so so he <laughs> really he, he liked know, to party <laughs> he liked to party he he you know he drank incredibly heavily he did he did dry up actually he he one of the reasons why they was able well, to he was going to die if he didn't they said look you got to wrap yeah. your, your time drinking on this earth is we're is kind of drawing to a premature end because mm. otherwise you're just i mean he died obviously what 48 years old anyway but um mm. i think that was because he loved his pipe as well loved to smoke but yeah i think yeah, he yeah. was he was sober more or less for like a decade or so before his death yeah the full story which isn't entirely included in the documentary is that he slagged off the pythons in the press and then was so ashamed of himself that he went completely cold turkey locked himself away uh, and then had a complete nervous breakdown and had to go into hospital for about a week and was on Valium. But when he left hospital, he, he was off the hard stuff. I don't know that he was completely sober, but he, he certainly wasn't drinking spirits. Well, a lot of any. alcoholics will say have quit drinking, but they'll still drink, still drink wine and beer because those don't count. Yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah. But, uh, he was certainly much more functional. It's like it's a glass of sherry, but yeah, it's like I'm yeah. not drinking a bottle of vodka, vodka before lunch anymore. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, and then the nice thing about the meaning of life as well is, you know, for all the sort of variability of the material, the the pythons are all on really good form as performers. That you know, they're all they're all absolutely on the top form. I think. Yeah, nobody's phoning it in. No, and they're all doing their part, and they don't need a leading man anymore. Yeah, and I like um, how we do see like when we like. Early on, when we see the six fish in the uh, in the tank and how that comes back around, like I always love it when a when a, a sketch circles back around and reintroduces itself, and mm. so it does give it some additional structure. Like, all right, well, we opened it with this silly scene, we're like morning, morning, like how you yes, doing? Like, yeah. you know, it's all so heartbreakingly English and polite, mm -hmm. and just they're not talking about anything, but it's just, they're going through all the niceties. But then we finally do get to come figure out why those fish were relevant when we come back mm. to the restaurant scene toward the end. Yeah, originally it was called Monty Python's Fish Film, actually. Apparently there's a script that Eric Idle has that has some other material in it. And one of the sketches that John Cleese said he really liked was a UFO landing. And then, the, you know, uh, a bit like the, the, uh, the day the world stood still and, and the aliens coming down, lecturing the earthlings and then turning around. And then they realize that they've left their keys inside the UFO and they can't get back in. <laughs> And he said he really wished that one had gotten in. There are all kinds of little sketches like that that did, that uh, that that didn't make the final cut. Yeah, I feel like there's an entire like 
ocean of movies that might have been made just from like the jokes that they decided to leave off to the side and mm. maybe some of maybe some of them are better but i feel like yeah, their 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 ideas that they decided not to use are better than most people's like best ideas yeah well they deliberately kept pulling it back to the meaning of life and that was one of the problems with the structure that they chose was that there might have been really good stuff that just didn't fit the theme so it had to be left out which is a little bit unfortunate actually um and and Certainly that there's a conversation that they they had, uh, which I think it might be one of the Netflix documentaries, actually, um, where they say that maybe they could make a movie now where they all just sit on the beach and read the sketches that they didn't include in The Meaning of Life. And they could make an entire movie that way. I, mean, I watch it. I mean, like Rob Wright and yeah. Steve Coogan are still making trip movies and trip shows and yeah. that sort of thing. And people will show up to watch their their heroes do their thing. But I guess for me, the end of their career or the last great sketch is John Cleese's eulogy or his like the the, the funeral for Graham Chapman? Yeah, like that's the last time you see him all together, and the way he where it's like it's silly and sad and moving all at once, and you see like Gilliam and Terry Jones like laughing hysterically in the audience. Mm. I feel like maybe that's that's like the perfect way to draw the official like twenty year journey of the Pythons to a close with the uh, the death because obviously it's like the, the Beatles once they lost John Lennon. No Beatles reunion was ever going to be the same. No, no, you're absolutely right. They did think about making another movie. There was the idea that they would do a sequel to Holy Grail. That was something that they did discuss quite seriously. And like I think middle-aged was... men going on the crusades and things like exactly, that. Exactly, yeah, which might actually have worked. And I think they all still had their comedy chops at that point. You're talking about probably the mid '90s, so that would have been something that w- would certainly have been interesting. And it was nice to see them perform live and they, they found ways of bringing, bringing Chapman in. Uh, I think they used film footage from uh, Christmas in heaven, the big musical number that ends the meaning of life. Uh, And then he came down on a screen and then it's, and then the screen opened and there was a, just just a different actor playing that part. Um, And actually Christmas in heaven, I think is one of the funniest things they ever did as well. And that's something that people don't, don't talk about very much and uh, again it was choreographed by Arlene Phillips and apparently they they got their inspiration by looking at uh, French sex clubs in Paris that was uh... <laughs> nice now uh, how yeah. did this movie do I, I know that obviously the previous two features did were runaway successes but did, did, how, did this not one good. do any business no it didn't do very well I mean they, they they didn't get their dream to never have to work again from from this movie it was very interesting actually they pitched it to Universal. They didn't want to use handmade films because they didn't trust Dennis O'Brien, who apparently had basically drawn a diagram for them explaining how they could manage their money and it'd be people managing it in the Cayman Islands and someone else managing this in the Bahamas. And they all nodded and smiled and then thought, we don't actually have a clue what he's talking about. Well, I'm seeing and, here. So the budget was $9 million estimated. That's that's a lot. And the, world, yeah. and the worldwide gross was $14 million. So that didn't is... Um, well. uh, an unfavorable outcome. No. Uh, so they, they managed to pitch it to Universal by reading a poem, which was something like, uh, this film has everything, everything that fits from the meaning of life in the universe to girls with great big tits. Uh, so they, they read that poem out and they told they told the head of Universal at the time how much money they wanted. And they said, we don't want you. We're not going to show you a script. We don't want any notes. And they were big enough at the time that they could actually get away with that. And uh, the chap in question, his name was Ted Mount, who was running Universal. He, the reason apparently he allowed them to do that was because 
their name meant so much that on the back of that they managed to hire or they, they managed to recruit all of the major comics from the 1980s so even though the meaning of life lot lost money it made the studio a great deal of money indirectly by gotcha. the, the comic talent that they actually managed to bring in and i think it's a movie that's lasted i think it has stood the test of time the quality of the material is such that it's something that people should take a look at yeah actually. i like it more now than i did when i first discovered it back, back, yeah. back in the day and i think i also was watching like the 90 minute truncated version whereas now it's like it's been fully restored and you can really enjoy mm -hmm. it like warts and all in spite of its uh peaks and valleys and ups and downs but well worth hunting down but i think if anybody other than monty python had made it people would be talking about oh my god it's one of the greatest comedies ever made it's yeah, just after yeah. you've made grail and brian people have very lofty expectations. They made two of the greatest comedies of all time. So of course people are gonna mm. have, they, they raise the bar just by, from their own uh, expert uh, filmmaking. I think that, you know, I think the Pythons made a mistake actually. They have said that after the life of Brian, they wanted to top it and there'd be nothing, it had to be like Monty Python's The Truth. It had to be bigger. And actually that's a mistake. And we mentioned Tarantino earlier. And the thing he did after Pulp Fiction was make Jackie Brown. Yeah. He decided Small, to make film. a smaller yeah. film. Yeah. And they really would have been better off just doing that. They should have made something modest. Don't try and top it. Go under it. Um, well, like, and, like Black Adder, which is a great example. Mm. Where it's like every season's a different era, but it's it all kind of goes together really, really well. But yeah, if you keep trying to get bigger, 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 at mm. a certain point you reach like, a full a full saturation point and you can't top the life of brian if you've made two of the greatest british comedies or just film comedies ever you're not going to top it so why even set yourself the task like maybe if they had tackled like world war ii and yeah. they'd all been playing like mussolini and churchill and hitler and things like that where every member mm -hmm. got to play like you know like a major head of state or something like that but like yeah you can't find a bigger topic Arthurian legends massive topic jesus christ and christianity massive topic like there's only mm. but so many massive themes to explore yes yeah no I, I think but i think it's right that it was the last film that they made they they hated the experience of making it i mean the the actual writing process was so tortuous uh and they say that they'd all done their individual projects they'd all developed their own styles and the idea of then coming back together again and somehow forming a group style was basically impossible at that point they just couldn't agree on anything um and so although they never definitively said we'll never work together again they didn't want to repeat what they'd gone through to make that movie and their careers had all taken off in different directions so it just didn't happen i mean the, the last time they got together was um uh the uh parrot sketch not included documentary was hosted by steve martin and that included a sketch that had all of them in it um but they cut that sketch because it just didn't work you know they they, they wheeled in graham chapman who was very near to death yeah uh and they performed the, the, the sketch the, the thrill work. was gone or thrill thrill was over and that i mean if things mm. do run their course bands run their course people I, mean, mm. I think they had a hell of a run it's mm. hard to think of people who work in the world of comedy have had a better run. I mean, obviously, Marx Brothers had a very long career. Chaplin had a very long career. Mel mm. Brooks had a very long career. Uh, Trey Parker and Matt Stone have had an incredibly long career. But mm. I would never argue that a, a troop of collaborators has matched mm. or exceeded what they were able to accomplish in like the roughly 15 years that they were active together. No, I think that's right. I think they do sort of strike the high watermark. Um from the perspective of a group of people collaborating on movies and 
and on sketches. And I, I like the, the circular nature of their career, that they started with a sketch series and they ended with a sketch comedy. I mean, yeah. I know John Cleese felt very much that there's nothing more exciting than the 90-minute movie and telling a story, but actually it's quite fitting that these people that were so exceptionally good at writing sketches ended by writing sketches. And, you know, at the time people were saying, oh, isn't it a retrograde step that they've gone back to writing sketches? It's Monty Python. Isn't it? Let's think about it differently. Isn't it great that they're writing sketches again? Well, I feel like we're we're kind of slowly but surely circling the drain in terms of I think so. arriving at an ending. So just any thoughts, uh, any final words or any final ideas before we, um, you know, put this topic to bed? I think we've ex explored it in a great deal of depth. I think you've, you've just got this incredible collection of people. It's just a total random happening that you've got these people in the same places at the same time that encountered each other and that perfectly complement each other. And for a time, we're able to successfully work with and against each other to create something quite wonderful. And I think the moment you take out any one ingredient, it becomes less than it was before. And I think that they ended they ended because Chapman died. It's quite plausible that they would have had a full blown reunion had he lived. Yeah. Um, rather like with John Lennon. Uh, although I, I wouldn't compare Chapman to Lennon in terms of a creative contribution, which is a harsh thing to say, but it's true. Um, and so that's left us with, you know, 45 episodes of a TV show, uh, several movies, um, you know, one concert movie. Uh, and they 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 never fell flat on their faces. You know, it's a it's a very near perfect collection of work. And I think it's wonderful. You know, the, the thing that uh, Michael Palin said about the series is it was like a box of fireworks. You just opened it. You never quite knew what was going to come out of it. And that's what made it so exciting. And I think that's a good way of explaining Python. You never quite know what they're going to do. For example, in Brian, all of a sudden, you know, you go from a biblical epic to a science fiction film. <laughs> There's nothing, nothing is off the table. And yeah. that's what makes the films and the show exciting and refreshing and surprising. And no one has ever did what they did quite the way that they did it ever. And that's why it remains fresh. And it's relevant today, as we've said, because they're dealing with tricky subjects intelligently, rigorously and fearlessly at times and they've they've produced timeless work, I would say. Well, I can't think of a better way to draw this to a close. So where can people find your podcast? Where can people find your writing? Where can people find your social media? Give us the full Stephen Saunders uh, experience. So on Twitter, it's that SJ Saunders, and that should lead you to all the variety of links. Um, my book, Into the Art of Magic, is available on Amazon. So if you just type that in, you'll find it. And I'll include a link in the video and the show notes below. Thank you very much. But more than anything, it's just been a pleasure to talk to you, Jamie, today. And well, I appreciate it. Like, I mean, uh, I know that you've had uh, a lot of um, other things pulling on your time and sure. attention, and you've had regrettably less time for filmmaking uh, endeavors. But anytime you want to come on Wrong Reel and uh, pick up where we left off with Chapel, or come up with a topic where we did there's no homework in advance where you get a chance to talk about flicks but you don't need to do the deep dive and watch 20 hours of material ahead of time uh, it's one of the things I keep kind of flirting with that I want to come up with more and more of them because I want to accommodate as many guests as possible but mm. when, when I do these giant filmography episodes it, it becomes impossible there are only so many hours in the day like you can only do mm. so many of those so I'm definitely trying to think of more ways to have more recordings with more of my friends on a more frequent basis so. 
Mm. It's during the preparation for this that the pythons have sort of become my family and my friends. You know, during lockdown, I've spent so much time watching the pythons get older and older through various films and documentaries. <clears throat> but it's actually been a very enjoyable experience. But also, yeah, it would be fun just to talk about something that a person knows everything about Absolutely. going in right from the start. Well, it's been a pleasure and privilege recording with you again. We hope you all enjoyed the episode. Definitely revisit all the Monty Python shit that we discussed. And if you enjoyed the podcast, make sure you subscribe, leave a rating, review, all those good things. You can find us on social media and all the usual places. And you can hunt down my YouTube channel, Geeking with James Hancock, where I just posted last night um, a video ranking all the films of Christopher Nolan in anticipation of the release of Tenet that I'm very proud of. It's like 23 minutes. It's like a little mini podcast unto itself. But can't thank enough for listening to the, uh, to the podcast we greatly appreciate it but more importantly as always onwards and upwards ain't like it used to be but uh, it'll do you know how to whistle don't you Steve you just put your lips together and blow <laughs>